0: Astonishing Legends would like to thank Babbel, Squarespace, Stamps.com, Cerebral, Peloton, Theragun, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible.
1: 25 years ago, on February 22, 1997, Art Bell, the host of the most famous paranormal radio show in history, Coast to Coast AM, called a man who had sent him a strange fax. That fax read as follows. Dear Art, I'm writing to you to see if I can get some help from you or your vast listening audience. I live in rural eastern Washington, near the Manastash Ridge. On our property, there is a hole. Like the previous owners and the owners before them, we've been throwing our trash into the hole. Apparently, the hole has been there for as long as anyone can remember. At first, I thought it was an ancient well. The hole is 9 feet 9 inches in diameter. There is a stone retaining wall around it and we put a steel door on top to keep anyone from falling into it. As I said earlier, people have been throwing their trash into the well for decades. Furniture, household trash, dead cows, building debris, you name it. The thing is, I noticed the hole never filled up, so I got curious, actually obsessed, and began trying to measure the depth of the hole. I emptied three fishing reels of about 1,500 yards of monofilament, trying to determine the depth. Soon, I was buying fishing line in bulk. So far, I've sunk about 80,000 feet of line into the hole without reaching bottom. My wife works at a local university with a geology department, and we hope to get some professional scholarly help in determining the depth of the hole. As far as I can tell, there's nothing else particularly strange about it except for two other things. Dogs refuse to get within 100 feet of the hole, and birds won't sit on the retaining wall or metal door. Another strange thing is there's no echo when you yell into the hole. Indeed, I've never heard anything hit the bottom when tossed in. We once tossed in an old refrigerator, and we never heard it hit the bottom. No crash, splash, or crunch. I hope your listeners can help with possible explanations. I'm wondering if this, based on my measurements so far, might be the deepest hole on Earth. Signed, Mel Waters. Art managed to get Mel on the phone, and the continuing series of conversations have definitely passed the bar for an astonishing legend. In 2011, 14 years after Art first spoke with Mel, Scott and I were having discussions about starting a podcast. I was working full-time in my former career, and Scott was furiously busy being a stay-at-home dad for his then three-year-old son. But we knew we wanted to do this podcast, even though it didn't even have a name yet. So we had started what we used to refer to frequently, the story folder. It lived on Scott's computer, and we constantly added to it. We still have it, and it has well over 1,000 potential story ideas now. The story of Mel's Hole was added to that folder 11 years ago, three years before we released episode number one of Astonishing Legends. It's one of the ideas that were a part of what made us want to do what we're doing. And tonight, we're finally covering this long-dormant legend. A legend that originated on the radio show that made it possible for us and all paranormal podcasts to find an audience. Coast to Coast AM. AM. The questions we had then, and still have now, was this bottomless pit real? And if so, what became of it? And what became of Mel Waters? Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. I would be very cautious, Mel, about accepting a generous offer for the property with a hole. Because, you know what? No matter what else, Mel, your hole is worth millions of dollars. Art Bell, creator and original host of Coast to Coast AM. Join us tonight for part one of our
2: two-part special series on the bottomless pit, Coast to Coast AM made famous in the late 1990s, Mel's Hole. And we're back! All right, are you are you falling into Mills hole? Yeah, I thought uh, well, all right, it was a couple things. First of all, we already did a falling and we're back for Hoska.
1: Or Hauska. Nobody remembers that. And on top of that, there's no echoes inside Mill's hole. I know. I was taking a little creative license to and okay. also uh, uh, giving Sarah a little bit of fun to put some effects and photos oh, yeah. on it. Because that's uh, what she wants so after getting yeah, of our course. dailies anyway. Also, I'm, I'm <laughs> very tired of saying "and we're back." So, oh no, no, I just want to freshen it up, freshen it yeah. up, and give it some pizzazz. But mm. this story requires no pizzazz because, man, the further you go down the hole. It's not even a rabbit hole No rabbits would disappear in this thing. They wouldn't come back. It gets weirder and weirder.
2: Yes, it does. All right, folks. Well, tonight we're going to be talking about a legend that started Mm. on Art Bell's infamous radio show, Coast to Coast AM. But first, a couple of very quick program notes. We wanted to give a proper shout out to one of our recent guests on our exclusive Patreon
1: show called The Astonishing Junk Drawer. His name is Bob Anderson. Yeah, Bob is a fascinating guy, and and, uh, we're lucky to consider him a a new friend and fellow podcaster here. And, And we had an outstanding interview with him where he talked about actually seeing the Chicago Mothman in person. How many people you know can say that, right? Yeah, it's pretty awesome. He was close enough to make out the texture of the skin on its wings. And on top of that, several other people had pulled off the highway over a quarry, and we're looking at it with him. Now, he has his own podcast, by the way, and and it's excellent. It's called Bob After Dark, so look for that wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I'll tell you what, Bob's
2: story was great, and just another good one in a growing series of guest interviews on the Astonishing Junk Drawer. So if you want to hear those, head over to patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where you can listen to those, as well as other bonus content, including commercial-free versions of the main
1: show here. You're not going to mention the other thing. Uh, What other thing? Well, we we did the last one, live with video. Oh, that's right, folks. We actually did the most
2: recent episode of the Junk Drawer live, and I feel pretty sure that will be happening more and more. Also, by the way, patrons, I apologize. I didn't post the audio version only of that to the Patreon Mm. RSS feed yet. I am going to get that done. So sorry. But you can go to Patreon directly and watch the video there. It's up there, the live video. Although, of course, now it's on tape. Digital tape. They don't say tape anymore, do they? Mm. So it's another reason to check out our Mm. Patreon page. Video
1: of our junk drawer. Sounds like something you could get arrested for in some states. And lastly, (laughs) folks... We never have to do this more than once a year, it seems. But here's the deal. Our fantastic editor, Sarah, is running out of segues again. So you know what that means. We need you to send in bits where you get to hear yourselves after a commercial block. You know what those are, right? You get to hear bits of yourself announcing segues of the show after a commercial block. And isn't that fun? You get to be heard by tens of people, maybe even hundreds. (laughs) Maybe even hundreds of people will hear that. But look, we enjoy Hearing you. We find them really funny and, and charming. And I personally love to hear that when I'm listening back to the show if I ever do listen. But yeah. Well,
2: yeah, it's my favorite part of QCing the show right before it
1: gets posted because it's the only part I haven't already heard. So it's yeah. it's really nice to hear. And I've been I've been pleasantly surprised. By some people we know through the show and friends of the show and and legenders, loungers and all these uh, folks that we will interact with. And it's like, there they are. There they are. Because some people we only know via text or or the the written words. So it's fun to hear them. Anyway, we need more of those. Yes, we do. It's not hard to do. You're going to have a lot of fun and you'll have even more fun hearing your own self.
2: Yeah, so the easiest way to do that is to hit our main webpage, astonishinglegends.com. And right there at the top, click on where it says, Submit a Listener Segway. It'll take you right into the directions. It's a piece of cake, but get some in soon, because if you don't, Sarah's going to fire
1: us. Oh, we don't want that. All right. So let's fall deep down into tonight's show. So Art Bell, sadly, passed away in 2018,
2: but not before launching another show called Midnight in the Desert, which mm-hmm. a lot of people will be familiar with. Coast to Coast, however, continues to this day with regular host George Norrie and then several regular guest hosts filling in, including a former guest of our own show from January this year,
1: journalist George Knapp. Yeah. Also, Connie Willis, who's when she's hosted, has turned us on to several stories, uh, one of them being Flight 19.
2: That's right. That's right. And so uh, it's it's pretty cool. It's still rolling. It's got a long legacy and uh, Art Bell will live forever in our hearts and minds. It's been a lot of fun revisiting art for this episode because mm-hmm. this is the first time in the history of Astonishing Legends we've covered a legend that actually started on Coast to Coast. That's its inception point. In terms of public knowledge, I mean, there were some, there yeah. was a small group of locals that would have known about this thing, according to the story, if you believe any of this at all. Mm. But uh, in terms of it becoming in a part of the paranormal zeitgeist, if you will, it started with Coast to Coast. For
1: once, a form of... Urban legend did not start with a creepypasta story. So yes. you folks out there, it did not start on the internet with creepypasta. It started with an unknown, mysterious, ancient technology called a facsimile machine. Yeah. <laughs> this is classic coast-to-coast AM fare. This yes. is a story that Art Bell himself, he loved. He said he, he loved this story. That's why he got so involved and invested with it and kept it going for several years, and it always makes an appearance on the Best of Art Bell. So whenever they have a collection of shows, this is one of the stories that is usually included, and if you love Art Bell Coast to Coast, you'll know this story, but you may not know all the details because there are several interviews that took place with the gentleman at the center of the story, Mel Waters, And they're a little bit hard to cull together. You can find them on the internet. You can also be a Coast Insider and get them in the archives. But really, it took us a little bit to suss out what was said when, the dates, and the timeline on this. So if you piece it all together, you can make a narrative. But we're going to help with that. I also wanted to say, though, is not only this story, classic, coast-to-coast, AM, Art Bell, it's also classic Astonishing Legends in that, as we said in the cold open, this is one of the premier and original stories that Scott and I would love to sit down with over an old-fashioned and just talk the heck out of it. Just go over theories and like, hey, did you hear about this? And what about this part with the magic beam? Oh yeah, what about the dogs coming back to life? These elements are exactly what we love to discuss and were part of the genesis for this podcast, in that, we would love to have a way to talk about this with not just us, but a bunch of people. And hence, we have a podcast. So, so when you listen to this story, just know that this is back to the roots original OG Astonishing Legends.
2: Yes, it is. It was an inspiration for the show years before the show even started When because it took us years to get it off the ground. That's true. The other, the, the other thing it reminded me of was just how smart, inquisitive, and funny art was. Yeah. I mean, some of the stuff that he said over the years that Mel Waters came on his show crack me up, including another one that was a close runner-up for me for the opening quote. This is right. an art line right here. Mel's the guy with the never ending hole. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah.
2: We could call it a bottomless pit, but he it was always a hole. It was uh, the never course. ending hole. Mel's hole is worth yeah. millions of dollars. <laughs> it's just I can't I know right. that Art knew what he was doing when he was doing that. So well, it's, you know what's it.
1: interesting is that a pit to me implies a bottom. And that's the crux of the story here. Is there a bottom to this thing? So when you say hole, you know what? I uh, was reminded of this when we started talking about Tiwunaku and Pumapunku. You have these blocks and some are called blind holes, right? Yes. Meaning they don't go all the way through. They're drilled for a reason. And maybe they fit a peg or a peg fits into them. There's a reason they didn't go all the way through to the other side. They certainly could have with their technology, but they didn't. So it had a purpose to it. So anyway, that's a blind hole. But in this case, it's not a well. As far as we know, there's no water in it. And it was never dug for that purpose, perhaps. But it's a hole. But where does it go to? Does it pop out on the other side of the earth? We will find out.
2: Yeah. And there's another part of this. And I just want to go ahead and get this out of the way up front for us, because I don't Mm. want to risk any spoilers. I don't want to bring this up at the (laughs) moments that would make them spoilers. But there is a clear connection between this story
1: and the, I guess, the root idea behind mm-hmm. Outer Range. We've both seen the entire series by now, to the end, hopefully of season one, and we're desperately hoping for a season two because there are just so many questions that yes. just left answer. It's dangling. a good show. It's a good show. Yeah, by the way. it was. It's thoroughly enjoyable, but there's some weirdness. And the more I got into this story and was reminded of it, the more I am convinced that this story here of Mel's Hole was part of at least the inspiration for Outer Range. Yeah, I would agree. We'll leave that up to your imaginations, and uh, some people will say that uh, this was all left up to Mel's imagination, but we'll see. Are there aspects of this story that can be nailed down? And this is like any great, uh, well, you can call it an urban legend, a media mystery of sorts or a legend tripping type of thing where you never get to the bottom of it, literally. But we'll see. How much of this are you willing to believe? But what I liked about it is that it starts off fairly innocuously and it ends up, let's just say you get your money's worth when it comes to weirdness. All right. Now, are we ready to find out what this hole's all about? And who is this Mel Waters character? Yeah, let's figure it out. It's funny. I have to stop my mind
2: from saying Mel Fisher, the treasure hunter, every (laughs) time I think about Mel Waters. Right, Yes, Mel Waters. So if I trip up, you can send the emails to Forrest.
1: Yes, I will just uh, I'll forward (laughs) them back to Scott. So the idea here is, as we go to describe the story and Mel and the hole, keep these elements in mind because you will have to make a judgment on whether you believe any of this at all. But before we start, here's something I wanted to say about Art Bell himself. He's much beloved for all of us who love this genre and strange stories and even the stuff that dipped into weird health kind of things. And and this story does too a little bit. I forgot about that. Yeah, that's right. Everything that encompasses the things that we like to talk about that you will probably hear on Coast to Coast AM People look back fondly on Art Bell as being the maestro, the ringmaster of all this weirdness, and they will often say, well, what do you like about Art Bell? And they'll say, you know, Art, he challenged his guests. He just didn't believe everybody that came on the show outright, right? He, he really challenged them, and he wanted to get to the bottom of this, and, and that's why we loved Art, is that he was pretty skeptical and stuff. And I would say, yes, but not always. Because to love this stuff, you don't outright reject it. You want to hear the story. You want to go where it's going to take you. And so to do that, you don't just rebut everything as it comes through the door. You seek stuff out, and then you make your judgment later. Like, what are the facts here? What do I believe? That was the charm of art, in that he was accepting without shutting the door and everything, and then slowly opening it to see what was behind it. You know what I'm saying? He opened the door, like, let's find out what's here about this story, and the most important part of it was that he loved the entertainment value. He was here to entertain us. It's like what we do on our show. We're infotainment in a way, in that we hope to deliver some decent information, but ultimately we're here to all be entertained, and that was the purpose of art. So when you look back on it, I know we all like to be nostalgic, but just keep that in mind as you hear this, and you get a picture not only of Mel, but of Art Bell himself. So that's why I love the story as well. So this saga starts off, you could say, on February 21st, 1997, when a man calling himself Mel Waters, stating he was from the Ellensburg, Washington area in central Washington state, he apparently sent a fax in earlier in the day to the Coast to Coast show. And for those of you who, I I can't believe if you don't know it, but what it is, it's a, there was an old tiny machine and you would stick a piece of paper in and through the telephonic wires... It would come out the other end to another fax machine and basically just print it out. Yes. The earlier models would be like the teletype, and that was just a telephonic signal where you would type in a message, and it goes to another gigantic 300-pound typewriter on the other end, and it would just type out that message for you, which was pretty cool to see Back in the old days when you didn't have that. So for those of you who don't know, and uh, what that did was just basically scan the image on one end and just recreate it on another end. So you could fax in your questions or story ideas to the show via fax. And a lot of people did that. And that's what this person, Mel Waters, did with this plea for help that we read in the cold open. And this fax is what piqued Art's curiosity when he read That's this, right. like, well uh, what are we talking about here well it's a mysterious hole on this gentleman ml waters property about nine feet nine inches in diameter or uh, for our, our european listeners 2.97 meters in diameter located about nine miles west of ellensburg washington and on or near the benashtash ridge in kittitas county I, knowing the region and the state somewhat well, it's more so centrally located. If you've ever taken a, a car ride or a bus coming from the east and heading towards Seattle, you get on I-90 and you will pass through Ellensburg. If you take the Greyhound bus, you stop off a little bit before that in George, Washington. Get it?
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's because it is. Is this back when you were a drug meal?
1: No, I would say back in the day when you didn't have your own means, Greyhound was uh, a way to get across the state in a leisurely manner. And the bus driver would stop off in George Washington at this cafe called, guess what, the Martha Inn. Oh, okay. See, George and Martha Washington. Well, of course, now it's a huge and popular, uh, there's a big music venue there. A lot of people, the Gorge, a lot of people go there for a great concert and they've had actually a lot of big names play there. George Washington is a little east of Ellensburg, but you will pass through Ellensburg on the way. And it is also home of Central Washington University. There are three universities like that. Of course, you have your Eastern Washington University in Cheney, this little town south of Spokane. And you have Western Washington University. And we've talked about CWU, Central Washington. I don't know if you remember, Scott, but they have a great primate lab there. And that is uh, at one time the home of Coco, the sign language ape. Oh, yeah. You know, it's interesting that you
2: bring up Coco just yeah. in terms of animals and science. Because the day that Art called Mel Waters after getting that fax was mm-hmm. also the day that they announced
1: Success with Dolly the Sheep. Same day. Oh, interesting. Cloned. The cloned sheep. Yeah, you know what? I believe... Same day. Mel talks about
2: that with Art. Does he? I don't remember him talking about that. They did talk about some other current events, but I don't remember them
1: talking about Dolly. Right. Not so much about the sheep. Art does bring up cloning. And basically, we're going to, don't jump ahead, but we're going to talk about what the government, what you think the government is willing and capable of doing. And it came up about cloning and, or it's like, well, that's a bunch of baloney. Of course, they're going to clone people. They're going to tell you they don't or would never, but if they can do it, someone's going to do it. Yeah. Because if they don't, you're going to have some uh, Dr. Evil type doing it, and you you better know what's coming, or you better do it yourself. So that's how governments react to stuff. And, and that includes PSYOPs, which is maybe tied to this. We'll see. Art gave a lot of time to Mel Waters. How many hours uh, would you say, Scott, of, are there of interview uh, with Mel? Well, his first appearance was around
2: 40 minutes. That's the first time that he spoke mm-hmm. to him. Then he had him back a few days later for, I think, an hour and 10 minutes. Then there was yeah. another appearance for an hour and 10 minutes a few years later, a few years after that, another hour 20 And after that two hours, 40 minutes, I think like it's all told, it's like five or six hours over the stretch of several years, which tells you a little bit about how Art felt about this story. Like you've already said, but he clearly (laughs)
1: was interested in this regardless of what he thought about it. It was good radio. Of course, people call in. And one of the other charms of this show is that they would always take caller like, what is to the Rockies? We're calling the the first time caller line. It was like, (laughs) there's a lot of charming things about the show that- Well, uh, he had
2: different lines. He had the first time caller line. He had the with the wild card I think it was yep
1: the wild card. a lot of people calling in on the wild card line and uh, yeah. that's uh, another great feature of this show and it's heartwarming to hear these callers from over a decade ago calling into the show with their questions and comments and of course some people don't believe him <laughs> they don't believe this guest and a lot of guests they he, he would have on the show but that didn't bother art look it's entertainment. Why are you get to shut somebody out just because, oh, that sounds silly? Well, this is all silly. That's my premise right. for what we cover. It's all impossible and ridiculous. And uh, there are people who aren't going to believe any of it. But it, it creates and sparks wonder. So in this case, though, people were calling in. And Art wants to let you know that he chose this story. This guy didn't force his way on the show. He's not just calling in as a cold call first-time caller. Art heard the specs of the story and thought it was interesting enough to want to interview Mel. So it starts off as a very longish segment for the coast-to-coast Coast AM radio show, usually. Sometimes people will get an hour, sometimes just a, a short blurb, depending on how many people that got lined up for that night. But there's another factor why Art was interested in that. There are some possibly paranormal properties, of course, about this hole and the land around it, possibly. It may have been seized by the federal government once they found out about it. Well, how do they find out about it? Possibly from the Coast to Coast AM show. Maybe somebody's listening. So I'm just going to hit some highlights here just to whet your appetites. Well, listen to this. Possibly seized by the U.S. government. And some of the attributes of the hole. Well, Mel Waters, now he didn't claim this himself. He said there were other neighbors who knew about this hole. And everybody, for as long as he could remember, were throwing junk down the hole, as we said in the cold open, right? Building materials, dead farm animals like cows, refrigerators. At one point, Mel threw one down there. Television tubes were another thing that Mel liked to throw down there because they make a good, satisfying pop <laughs> you know, for the tube when it when it smashes. And they had been on the property for about four years, Mel and his yep. wife. Yeah. People had owned that property before them for about, I think the previous owner, he said, was quite elderly, and he'd owned it for about 40 years. Yes. And for all that time, for decades then, generations have been throwing crap down this hole. Yeah. And he said, it should fill up by now, right? I mean, how deep is this thing? And Mel never said this, but one of the stories that he does tell Art about, because he's asking him like, well, anything weird happened with this? And it's like, what else? Well, he said, uh, yeah, there is one story that Mel had heard. And again, this is not Mel's story. He's saying this is probably apocryphal, is that there's a story of a neighbor who was a hunter and he had a hunting dog. And when the dog died, as uh, rather than bury him, he placed him in the hole. And the story goes a little while later, the hunter and other people, apparently, depending on who he had talked to, saw this dog alive again. Same collar, same metal tag, same coloring, just running through the woods, sometimes in town. But the dog would not come back to the hunter. So Okay, you got a pet cemetery angle on this thing.
2: Yeah, well, there was also a story that it looked like the dog was hunting with another person
1: Yeah, at the time. Yeah. But he knew it was his dog. He <laughs> knew it was his dog. It was the same color yeah. and the same tag. So you could say like, well, they just mistook it for another dog, but it's a small community there. Everybody knows each other and you don't get a lot of outsiders. So if you want to believe that angle, that's one paranormal story. Another one is that this is also told to Mel by another neighbor one time at night. He was there by the hole and he saw a black beam, blacker than black, emanating from the hole and into the night sky, blotting out everything around it. Just this black beam. And it wasn't just that neighbor. Apparently, as Mel will tell it, other neighbors have claimed to have seen that. But Mel himself did not. He's just saying, look, this is some of the weird stories I've heard about this thing. But for me, really, the weirdness is that I just can't find the bottom. And it sounds pretty mundane. And then, years after Mel has his interactions with the hole and kind of leaves that story for a bit, other people, of course, heard this broadcast and went looking for it with their own obsessions about it. And some of the other crazy things about this hole is that people who went to see it and research it for themselves, legend trippers and terminal investigators... There are claims that if you took a radio, portable radio, and you went near the hole, you could hear radio broadcasts and music from the past. So it's a hole-in-the-ground chronovisor. No one knows what the chronovisor is. Well, give us a little explanation then. Oh well it was uh, supposedly these glasses that let you look into
2: look into time <laughs> in the, in the past and the future I think
1: right Yes different uh, different time periods yeah. if you all remember the Nazi bell uh, there is a claim that when that thing was up and whirring and and, and purring above it people could see images of past events yeah. yeah different time periods it created a time vortex that's what's happening here a little bit another claim is that it has uh, alchemical properties and that people said if you take metals near the hole they would change into other metal and different substances hmm. just table that for the moment it's a weird hole okay <laughs> okay so just to be clear yeah. mel's hole is weird mel's hole is weird okay I and, just wanted uh, to make that privately clear. all you folks out there get your whole jokes there's going to be a lot of them there's i'm going to no- have a hard time <laughs> resisting them so we will endeavor to be adult about this yeah, you can yeah <laughs> What was the last one? Oh yes, Lake Titicaca. Okay, we got through that pretty well. I have the utmost confidence we'll be fine with this one. We are going to bring the whole, whole story.
0: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Check.
1: Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Renee. Now, back to the show. Well, just to kind of round out the tantalizing, titillizing aspects of the whole here, the story goes on in that there's some dark spots to it. Nobody seems to know a real Mel Waters. So as the narrative continues, and Mel is a part of this and keeps popping up here and there, People start to wonder, who is this guy? Did he ever really exist? Well, obviously, there's a recording of him, right? But who is, quote-unquote, Mel Waters? There's a question about that. It's all cloaked in mystery, as well as the hole. Where is the hole? Could anybody find it again? Well, people have claimed to right after the story aired. Now, here's the thing. After that story aired on Coast to Coast, it got a lot of imagination sparked. People went looking for it. There were local news reports. Newspaper reporters were trying to find out who's this Mel Waters guy? Where is this hole? He kind of describes it as being on the outskirts of Ellensburg near Menashtash Ridge, but it's a large area. Where exactly is this? And where can we find this property? And some people have claimed to have found it, but they never told anybody else where it is exactly. So it's a hole with a mystery. And everyone surrounding this mystery is also a mystery. And you could say like, well, look, it's just a crank call. It's a hoax. See, people do that all the time and they fool art or they they fool George Nori or any of the other hosts with their crazy stories. But this one is different in that if it is a hoax, there are enough seemingly real elements to keep it going, to keep it believable. And it gets nuts, but not all at once. That to me is a sign of a hoax right off the bat. It's just immediately too much. To me, this thing unfolded in a way that uh, I think... If it was a hoax, it was expertly done. Okay. So
2: yeah, let's set the stage to when this first phone call came in, or I should say, and I, you know, I think that's a mistake to say that, or to when mm-hmm. art first reached out to Mel, because yes, art was getting right. faxes all the time. A billion people are faxing a show, and this is one that he plucked out and decided to look into. As mm-hmm. opposed to a wild card call coming in or a call coming in on one of his lines like, hey, this happened I you know, I'm in an airplane over area fifty one so <laughs> oh, that
1: was another, good, that was another yes. great show, which famous yeah. famous episode he faxes this over and I think he maybe is just thinking art's going to announce it on the show like anybody who uh, wants to call in with some theories or what Mel should do about this whole geologists or karst experts, anybody have some recommendations to check this out because he was just curious. He was just like, I I don't know what to do with this thing. I I want to explore it more in a safe way. What should I do? And R was interested enough that he got the phone number off the top of the fax, uh, again, to explain this if you've never seen a fax. If you turn on the settings on your fax machine, you could have a fax number, of course, print out at the very top in the header or the footer of you know, what your number was, not only your fax number, but also a telephone number, If people want to call you about like, hey, what is this? Uh, you just faxed me. So he got that phone number for Mel off that header or footer off the paper fax that came through and he called him. Yes. And you could say like, it's a good way to bait him. Uh, maybe yeah. he uh, just you know, didn't give him a number, but just, well, there is a number here. If uh, Art's interested, he will call me at this number. So that's how it started up. And Art called Mel. Yeah, and so this would have been February 21st,
2: 1997. Again, the same day, as I because I always like to look these things up, mm-hmm. that Dolly the Sheep's existence was mm-hmm. announced. Not that she was born. It was just that when they said, hey, we cloned a sheep in Scotland. And uh, just because the page that told me about Dolly the Sheep had some other good facts on it for what was going on this day, I wanted to let everyone know that the number one song in the United States was the Spice Girls' be. <laughs> wanna be, <laughs> wanna be my lover. Okay, oh, and then uh, I'm a horrible, horrible singer. Uh, number one
1: song <laughs> in Britain,
2: yeah.
1: Don't Speak, no doubt. Oh, those yeah, of us yeah. of a certain age... That'll bring back some memories. That seems flipped. I would think the Spice Girls would be, would have the number one show in Europe being European. And uh, no doubt. Yeah, maybe maybe that you think that maybe they got that backwards. I don't know. That was big here. So yeah, um, well, they both were big, big songs. Yeah. uh,
2: You know what? You're right. This is, uh, and what kind of astonishing legend host would I be if I didn't fact check it? Uh, You're making a very good point here. So I decided to look at the actual Billboard website for the Billboard Hot 100 for February 21st or 22nd, also of mm-hmm. 1997. Number one, wannabe, Spice Girls. So I guess it's right. Oh, okay. So, uh, my hat's off to uh, onthisday.com. They do have it right, <laughs> even though
1: it looks backwards. But uh, for those of you who keep track of the archives, the guest the next night would be author Dean Koontz. Another big hit from the the late 90s. So the recording that I listened to and took notes from, we'll have a link to that, that is on a compilation archival website for the Saga of Mel's Hole. They have a clip that is a compilation of everything. And where they got that, though, was from The Best of Art Bell. And that is a rebroadcast, a compilation of all of Mel's interviews, at least the first three. And... To be clear, those are from February of 1997 when they first started. So that first show, yes, the next night's guest would be Dean Koontz, the author.
2: Yeah, so technically, because the show runs so late, it was the 21st and the 22nd. Starts on the 21st, finishes on the 22nd. That's when this was happening. And yes, the Spice Girls were at the top of the charts in the United States, and no doubt was at the top of the charts across the pond. So Mm -hmm. Art Calls Mel... And says, hey, I got this fax from you. What is going on? Mm -hmm. And starts to get the story from Mel. And what's interesting is Mel is talking about life in Ellensburg, Washington, where this story is supposedly taking place. So this episode, this series, folks, is a big, if you believe any of this at all, that phrase was never more apropos than it is for this particular story. (laughs) So we'll be looking along the way at the other details that Mel Waters offers in his story. Now, if you want to hear the original one, you got to join the Coast to Coast Insider. You can get over there. It's uh, real affordable. I think the monthly fee right now is $6.95 a month or whatever. Mm -hmm. You can get into the back end there and listen to these old, old shows like this one which is really cool. Some of these Mel Water Shows are available on YouTube in uh, different segments and places because a lot of people are fascinated with this story. But we would encourage you to support Coast to Coast. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's where we listened to them and took our notes from them. So one of the things that happens with Mel, he's calling in. He's like, yeah, you know what? We've just had a a huge blizzard. This particular piece of property didn't have power. It didn't have water. It didn't have telephone, anything. And uh, they had some buildings on it, but they had collapsed because of this snowstorm. Mm -hmm. But the property itself, that's where the hole is, and there's a couple of varying facts about who owns it, but one of the things that Forrest already indicated was that they had had it, him and his wife, who were already, I think, in the process of becoming estranged or separating, had had it about four years, Mm -hmm. but the property had prior belonged to an elderly person who had had it for 30 or 40 years Mel thought, and that person obviously knew about the hole that was on the land. Yes. And a lot of folks in town did. And now, when I say a lot, Mel indicates, oh, you know, I don't know, maybe 20 people at least Mm -hmm. were coming and being allowed to dump into Mel's hole. Yeah. So.
0: Oh, so that
2: get your laughs out now, all right? <laughs> yeah, so I'm not. We're not never gonna, gonna yeah, make. Yeah, I'm gonna we're problems. not gonna make it through. Okay. Oh uh, no, I'm not. We're not gonna make it through. So this is in Ellensburg, and
1: of course, I take it you're familiar with Ellensburg, Washington. Well, yeah. I mean, I I went to the University of Washington, and yeah. that's in Seattle. And of course, I have uh, friends there. I'm I'm familiar with Washington State and Northern Idaho, and parts of western montana so the whole area a lot if you live around there you usually are right especially if you live in what they call the inland empire which is uh as people will see on the map it's like well that's more central washington slightly south and central of, in washington and you're correct but a lot of people consider anything east of the cascades to be eastern washington so right. and it's funny if you tell people like oh i'm from uh you know, I'm from the Spokane region or I'm, I'm from uh, northern Idaho, the panhandle. Like, oh, it must be really rainy there. It, it, right. No, no, that you're thinking of Seattle. You're thinking of Tacoma, Olympia, all the, uh, the more the western cities there. And yes, it is often rainy and uh, gloomy during the winter. The usual weather pattern is 40 degrees with drizzle.
2: Yeah, and that would be influenced
1: by the geography of the area, right? Like the, the Well, you're, you're on that. the coast, yeah. So Vancouver's the same thing. That's why they shot a lot of the X-Files there, because it, it was a moody and evocative. But what I will say, having gone to the University of Washington uh, for two years at least to get my undergraduate stuff out of the way, is that you would be like that during the day, and then as the sun was setting, the, the clouds would break, the winds would come through, and it would be a beautiful sunset. So it just changes a lot, but yes, a lot of people can't put up with that because it is very, uh, it is very rainy during the winter, but the springs and summers, gorgeous. Right. So if anybody in the Pacific Northwest has gone westward and on I-90... And don't you know of I-90? You you must have taken it on your cross-country journeys at some point, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. But I've just, I never
2: got up to the Pacific Northwest. I always wanted yeah. to, but I haven't quite made it up there.
1: Yeah, so. so when I was a kid, if you take a car trip with a family and you head west, you'll go through Ellensburg because it, it goes right through I-90 and I-90 will touch the edge, the bottom edge of the city limits there of the town. Right. So right. you go through there, and then uh, a little while later, you're in the Seattle area, if you keep on going. So a lot of people in the area have heard of Ellensburg, but it's a, it's a little town. It's a college town, right? as Mel will describe it. A little later on, as we'll see, he describes the population back then as about uh, like 12,000 or so, and, and over half of that is probably college students. So a little less than maybe 6,000 people are local. So it, it is a tight-knit community, and that figures into this because with that descriptor, you should think that people would know of Mel. And as he describes it, like, yeah, a lot of people were dumping there. He didn't have it fenced off. You could kind of, I think there was a little bit of an access road, maybe a mile in, uh, then it goes to a dirt road. Yeah, I think it was a mile,
2: a mile and a half from the mouth of the access road to the hole. Right. Yeah. A lot of people are showing up. They're throwing refrigerators down. (laughs) He's doing this too. They're throwing television tubes. They're throwing all kinds of things, and they're never a crash, splash, or crunch, as he right, says. Right, They can't ever hear any noise. And there is even um, a Mexican gentleman who makes yeah. uh, money calling <laughs> off used tires right. in town and in the area,
1: and he brings the truck up there and dumps all those in the hole. We heard about this uh, later, yeah on a, on a, yeah, on a later interview with Mel, that he said, well, I never told you this before, but yeah, we had the diminutive... Mexican gentleman whose job was to collect these used tires, and if they were too bald, if he couldn't resell them or retread them, instead of paying a disposal fee, we just throw them in the hole. He said, "Like there must be thousands of tires down there, right? So, on top yeah, of everything yeah. else, literally right. on top of everything else." And as Art said, "Like, ugh, God, that bottom of that hole, if there is one, has got to be disgusting. Tires, horrible dead cows, stew. right?" So.
2: Anyway, a lot of stuff is going into the hole, and when Mel is on talking to Art, he confesses to being a little bit concerned about the water table, but the thing is, when he went to measure the depth of the hole, he had a very novel idea. He apparently used to be, well, he was a self-described former almost professional shark fisherman. Yeah, so
1: think of Quint. Yes, and Jaws. Right, Robert Shaw. He doesn't do that for a living. He's certainly not that uh, grizzled. Nowadays, at this point, he's pretty much retired, but he's working on a few things, but he has experience with shark fishing. And and he has a clever idea, like you said, to find out, one, not only how deep is the hole, but is there water down there? Yeah. And at the the time that this story takes place, we're able to deduce based
2: on something he said in a later interview, that he was probably around 64 or 65 when Mm -hmm. this first call takes place. And he decides he's going to get some fishing line and put a, a one pound weight on it, which you would think as a fisherman, you're like one pound, that's crazy, but not for sharks. He's probably got these. So <laughs> taking a one pound weight and putting it on the end of a 20 pound test line, monofilament. Right. And he's got these big reels, these big saltwater shark reels, and he's lowering the line yeah. down and trying to wait for it to go slack. Right. It's like when the weight hits the bottom, the line's going to go slack. So he gets his reel, he lowers it down. It's going down 1,500 feet. With his initial spools, yes. With his initial right. spools, and nothing's happening. Right. So he's starting to try to figure out, well, wait, where is the bottom of this hole? How deep can it be? Yeah. And as this stuff is happening, and he's trying to make these determinations, they're doing other experiments. Like right. he's yelling into the hole. <laughs> and one of the things that he said about that was, he never heard an echo of right. any kind. right. It was like it dampened the sound almost.
1: No sound came back. Well, sound or light, that's the other thing is that he shown uh high powered flashlights. You know, back then you could get well, you can you can get a hundred thousand candle power, uh I, yeah. I'm not sure at the time, but now it's fairly common you can get like a million candle power flashlight yeah now with led you can get these crazy handheld spots yeah they'll like start amazing. a fire uh but the idea would you know even in metal's day he said you could point these at the sky and you'd see the beam go all the way up uh, into the night sky yeah he would point that down into the hole he said like it just swallowed it up he said it only it would l- illuminate the sides of the well which also i'll describe as and you had to kind of piece this together like what's around the hole it's not just a dirt hole with nothing around it Mel described it as having a stone retaining wall. And that went down about 15 feet or so. And then it would be dirt and rocks.
2: Yeah, if you looked inside, but on the outside, it was only three and a half feet tall. But
1: when you looked inside, silence of the lamb
2: style, it went (laughs) down about
1: 15 feet. Here's the deal: is that there was a lip on it. So it wasn't just, I thought it was flush at first, but no, it is kind of like a well in that sense there is a a rock retaining wall around it. So, you know, so you didn't basically slide in or fall, we're able to fall in. Now, if you did, that'd be the end of you. And that's the deal is that somebody built this. If this is true, that is curious to me. Somebody took time and care to build this retaining wall around. And again, it goes down about 15 feet. He said, basically after the dirt and rock, phase after the 15 feet, it was just stone as far as you could see. And then you couldn't see anything down there any further. That's right. That's so it's right. just a, this black abyss. And it's the trope of the bottomless pit. All of us, when we were kids, heard stories about that. Why is that such a big thing? Because of the bottomless part. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. What do you mean there's no end to this thing? What do you mean I can't hear a twink, even if it's 30 seconds later? Well, that's what's stumping Mel here. And so as he runs out of the 1,500 yards of monofilament, he then goes to the professional fisherman's shop where you can buy more advanced gear than probably your Dick sporting goods. He's now buying 5,000-yard spools of 20-pound test line. And the way he described it later is that he had uh, basically an outrigger. So that was about a foot and a half, two feet long. And that was an extension over the hole so that the line is now dropping down more or less straight through the center of the hole. Right. And yeah, what he said later is that you could move it side to side when it got that long, but it was kind of hard under the weight of the line itself. So that's what's happening here. He's now splicing together 5,000 yard spools of line because the idea is that uh, you go to to the fisherman's store here and they're assuming that you're just filling up other smaller spools reels, right? Right. For other fishermen. Maybe you have a fishing charter and you have guests and you give them fishing poles to use. And so line gets lost or gets tangled. You have to replace that. They don't know or care what he's doing with it. But that's what he's saying is that you can get these big foot wide spools of monofilament. Right. So he's
2: running it down there. It's getting longer and longer. He's getting down like past 4,000 feet. He wants to find out at this point, it's like, well, there must be water down there. Did I hit water? So he comes up with this experiment, again, based on his shark fishing skill set, right. where he's going to take a roll of lifesavers and send it down. You can put the the string through the middle and send it down there. And then this is something that I thought this was interesting. He's talking about a shark fisherman's trick, and this is what mm-hmm. they would do is he said they would put their bait on a balloon attached yeah. to a roll of lifesavers, and the bait would go out... Into the ocean on a tide, and uh, right. this is quoting what he was saying on uh, Coast to Coast. And eventually, the lifesavers would melt, and the bait would fall to the bottom.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: I, I was like, oh, "This is crazy!" And then I went today, and I found a YouTube video and put it in the links <laughs> yeah. about using a balloon to bait sharks. Uh, yeah. There's nothing about the lifesavers, but you know, right. this is definitely a real technique. Yeah, and it talks about that. That might have been his little hack, the lifesaver part of it. But he so yeah. he sent the lifesavers down because he knew. That was his control for his experiment. He knew that lifesavers dissolved in water and that he would be able to determine if there was water by whether or not the lifesavers dissolved, as opposed to right. just sending down a weight that might get
1: dried off by the time it got back to the top. Good point there. And his point was that, yeah, if you're surf fishing or you're, you're fishing from the coast, you can't cast out far enough to get into shark range. Now, That's right. you have famously caught a flounder with a bit of dried apple. From the shore. Yes.
2: Yes, I have. In Let's the North Carolina surf. Well, <laughs> it was a dehydrated apple. Okay. And uh, I was in the Boy Scouts at the time, and yeah. my scoutmaster said he would eat his hat if we managed to catch fish with dehydrated apples, because we'd run out of <laughs> bait. And sure enough, <laughs> we did manage to catch surf catch, oh. flounder yeah, in the North Carolina surf with dehydrated apples. And he did attempt to take a bite out of his hat, but we, we
1: let him off the hook. <laughs> Fortunately, his hat um, was made out of dehydrated apple.
2: Completely. Yeah,
1: dehydrated apple hat, but it did work. Flounder's delicious, surf flounder. and uh, The point though, is that you were surf fishing. You're standing in the surf, right? Yeah,
2: yeah, you get a big saltwater pole, pretty long pole right. and two or three weights, but they're only a few ounces. You can put two or three hooks on it and cast out past the breakers uh, if you can. Okay. If it's high tide, usually the waves are breaking closer to the ocean. Let's go out just a little bit
1: past the breakers and they, they would be there. My question is that uh, you have to get the bait and the, the weight in a yeah. cast, I don't know, what, 30 feet, 40 feet into the surf? Yeah, yeah. So in that case, yeah. But okay. no sharks, yeah. Right. So the balloon keeps the weight and the bait afloat as it takes it out to the tide to shark depth. And then by that time, the lifesavers will have melted yeah. and they provide a delicious winter green treat to the fish. The bait drops and now you're now you're shark fishing. So in this yeah. case though, he's figured like, well, if there's any reasonable moisture down there, it's going to dissolve the role of lifesavers at some point.
2: Yes. And oh, and I do want to point out because balloons are a horrible maritime hazard uh to oh, not yes, only life, but boats. Yeah. Uh, the YouTube video I watched today, the guy said very plainly in it that it was
1: a biodegradable uh, balloon that would dissolve. Ah, very good. Very good. Yes. Unlike the crew of that one party boat that- Yeah, uh, that's <laughs> what were... made me
2: think, I need to really yes. say something about this. Yes, yeah.
1: we should. That You shouldn't do that because that's just a bunch of latex now clogging up and polluting the, uh, the bay.
2: Yes. Doing everything. It's killing animals and your boats and jet skis and whatever else. So... Um, He's doing this, he, he's like, you know, it's 5,000 feet, there is there water, there must be water at this point, point. and sh- nothing is happening. Lifesavers come up bone dry, and he can't figure out what to do next other than add more line. Now, he has been yeah. talking about his wife, who supposedly worked at, he just says a local university, but Ellensburg, right in the heart of it, Central Washington
1: University, so that's probably the school. It's assumed that's the school, yeah. because <laughs> what's also hinted at is that she works in the geology department. Right. Now she mentions to Art because well what a what a great lead. We need a geologist. Well, yes. he said uh, you know Art says, "Well, what would your wife's colleagues say when, you know, you pressed her, to press them about coming out and taking a look?" Well, they just oh, they scoffed. It's like They scoffed.
2: Up. Yeah. And and that's a believable reaction actually because sure. you got to it takes a certain kind of person whether it's in the geology department or wherever you're going, it takes a person like the kind of person that listens to this show to go. <laughs> huh. No, regardless of your profession, this isn't about your profession. It's about a certain disposition where you say, "That sounds crazy, but you know what? Let me get some gear and let's just check it out real quick." It's easy to imagine that that department is just like, "Yeah, whatever." Your husband's crazy. You guys don't have a bottomless pit on your land, and we've got all these. Yeah, yeah, we've got all these experiments to finish, or we've got these theses to write, and whatever. So, that's plausible to me that they were like, "No, we're not going out there." Mm-hmm. So anyway, he's still trying to figure out how to get to the bottom of it, literally. He's like, I want to mm. get to the bottom of my hole. So <laughs> <laughs> he, oh, he's damn. now trying Check that one off the uh, list. Yes. to put more monofilament onto the line and just keep lowering it, lowering it down. And right. as Forrest said earlier, as he's unfolding this story to mm-hmm. Art Bell, he's talking about the dog story. And he yep. does say, I just want to make this clear from the very beginning. Yep. He says, this might be apocryphal. He says the word apocryphal. Yes. Which was almost, almost the name of our show, which I don't think anybody would. Yeah, one of our names before Astonishing Legends was Apocrypha.
1: Oh, yeah, well, that was, uh, yes. That I was liked on the, it. Uh, That was the, mine. <laughs> that was on the bar napkin you liked when we much. first discussed it. But yes, yeah, when in the bar napkin decide, over there in Los Feliz. Uh, the spellability factor was very low. And also
2: nobody would know really what that word is, which basically means made up. Um, so <laughs> mm, right, right. In sh- no uncertain terms. So we wound up with Astonishing Legends. But anyway, he said, well, this story might be apocryphal, but supposedly the dog went down. And then, you know, the first time he tells the story, he's just like, and then the hunter saw the dog like you said mm-hmm. running through the woods mm-hmm. it was the same dog same collar you know and in these later appearances there's a little more about the dog we'll get to those later but it's yeah. the, that's the first idea it's not something that mel ever said himself so far all he said is this hole's deep i can't find water in it right. i gone down about 5000 feet and i'm going to keep going down so
0: yeah.
2: art whatever his disposition is yeah. there's a couple of times when he's just like so Mel, you're you're not pulling my leg, right? <laughs> you're telling like, the truth. It starts out very in. gentle, yeah. yeah. Right. And and Mel, every time, no, no, I'm not pulling your leg. I'm right. I'm telling you the truth. This is on my land. This is happening. And you know, I just then he starts talking about you know, folks know about it around here. Everybody's bringing their stuff to dump in it. Yeah. And as Forrest said, the the he didn't mention the uh, gentleman bringing the tires until a later interview. But right, he did say I let my neighbors put stuff down in there. So, well, that, you know, that's the
1: tradition around there. Now, here's the thing is that uh, before you uh, start thinking that these are all horrible people. Yeah. You'll find out Mel is actually fairly ecologically minded. And he even says, uh, you know, I I, yeah, I know the TV tubes are bad. and I felt and bad what, about the TV tubes. Yeah, yeah. And Art's grilling him on this. Like, well, I don't know if that's uh, you should be doing that. You yeah. Know? <laughs> and just like. And another thing is well, that. He's also like, I also don't know if you should say it on the radio. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> was a little late for that. Yeah. But, you know, as far as Mel's concerned, this is not a new idea. Even out here in Southern California, uh, maybe seven or eight years ago, they made a deal with one of the local mine owners. And it was a very deep mine shaft out here, somewhere in the Mojave, I think. And yeah. it's not being used anymore. And I think they made a deal with some of the counties to use it as a trash dump because it's right. essentially solid rock. It's not going to seep into anything. Right. And so it's used as essentially a dump, and they're just going to stuff that thing full until it's at the brim and, and then yeah. uh, seal it off. Yeah. Now, what Mel says is that, because Art, of course, Art presses them on this, it's like, well, don't you think it's going to interfere with the aquifer or anything that's going on? He's like, well, you know, we have our water tested. Ellensburg water in that area is pure and delicious. So our thinking is that this thing's going down into solid bedrock. There's no seepage. It's not sandstones. There's no aquifer issues that people have been doing this for at least 40 years. Yeah. He said the gentleman that he bought the property from was about in his 80s. And it was as long as he could remember it going on right. you know, that people were doing this. So not that you should keep on doing that, but it's convenient. Look, these people are rural. It costs money to go to a dump and you've got big stuff and this is cheap. So yeah, they figure like, eh, well, no harm, no foul. Yeah. If you can't be like super concerned about this, and then be
2: okay with fracking, where they won't even tell you what the chemicals are (laughs) that they're shooting into the earth at these
1: same depths. So, in a little side note here, remember uh, we went into on site to do an event for a large automotive company, and people fly in. Uh, There was a lot of uh, contingency from Southern California, and I remember we were in a rural town. I won't say which one it is but we're in the production office, right? And uh, somebody comes in, it's like, oh, I have these batteries. Where's the recycle bin? And I said, you know where you are, right? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, there's no, that's Southern California. There's no recycle bin here. right? Uh, So either you pack them back in your bag or they go in the trash and they're like, "Eh," you know, and so that's what you learn. It's like somebody telling you, we don't wear seatbelts around here. If you've driven around recently without a seatbelt, it feels weird. It doesn't feel right. So, again, this is also 1997. So uh, attitudes have changed. And uh, let's just say that Mel is aware of these things. And uh, that's even in the moment he was aware of it. yeah, Yeah, it's not cool. He's certainly not throwing pets or cows down this thing, but he knows other people have. Yeah. And they all know this. Now, here's another important aspect of it. Can any neighbors who know about this be produced? Keep that in mind as we go along. Yes, definitely. as you hear way. the story, this might stick going down. So anyway, right. please continue.
2: There gets to a point where, of course, it's coast to coast. So Art starts taking phone calls and people are calling in and <laughs> talking to Mel. <laughs> yeah. And it's just the best part of the show, hearing these folks talk. One of them
1: calls in and volunteers to be lowered into the hole. That is a gentleman from Austin, Texas. Yes. Uh, You get people all... Well, listen, if any of you have listened to it, you know there's a certain type of person that calls in in a certain age range, and and maybe uh, they're not NYU professors usually. (laughs) Uh, not, are no Are you sailing like, the <laughs> listeners of Coast to Coast on astonishing legends? No, what I'm saying is that there are people that think like that aren't like this is what a bother. I this is yep. a ridiculousness. I didn't have time for this. It's people who are interested in this stuff. And if you've ever watched any ghost hunting show or no ghost hunters there is a blue collar aspect to this. Yeah. That is the background of my family. We're not yeah. all highfalutin. We, there's a lot of laborers and artists on my side of the family. The other yeah. side, they're doctors and lawyers. Our side right. is a salt of the earth type. So it's people who don't think this is ridiculous. We all share an interest in this, but it's people from all over and they have some good ideas and that's what they're calling in. That's why Mel contacted Art. Is that like, hey, is anybody out there? Any of your listeners? I know you have a huge listener base. What can we do about this? Because here's the thing that, according to Mel, is really driving him with this minor obsession, is that he just wants to experiment. It's like, I got something kind of unusual here. What should I do with it? Right. In Mel's will, he had it that if he should pass away, he was to be thrown down the hole. Yes. And that's something Art brought up specifically because the
2: dog came back to life. He's like, right. well, if you had a fatal disease,
1: <laughs> yes, would you want to go into the hole? Right.
2: You know, the implication being that zombie male would then wander the land, I guess, yeah. popping back out of the hole somewhere. I don't know. But he said, yeah, sure. If I was dead, you know, he's like, alive? He's like, I'm not going down there. Yeah, no, yeah. are you yeah. crazy? But right. this guy from Austin called in and said, I'll go down, but I want to be in a cage and I want mm-hmm. an instant up button.
1: <laughs> yeah, that that didn't really help. I want the, a button
2: uh, <laughs> in my hand that's just up and I yeah. can hit it in case I see something crazy. He actually said something about look, if it can eat the whole cage, then I'm I'm a goner anyway. So um if there is something in there.
1: And it didn't really help the incarcerated gentleman in the huska Castle scenario who yeah. yeah. was brought up white-haired raving like a maniac and yes. died soon after. So yeah. usually if you take your cue from media, literature, tall tales, it's never good to go down the hole. You yeah. don't come back with superpowers. You come back in a more disadvantageous state, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. So people are joking about that. It's like, well, I'd, I'd do it. And then as it goes on, Art says he's got a lot of requests. It's like, yeah, I'll go down. I'll, I'll yeah. test it out. In Mel's case, though, what Art says is like, yeah, you can't really just dispose of yourself or... Human remains into the well. No, and I feel I feel like at one point
2: Mel goes. Mel himself is like, well, "What if the rope breaks?" He's like, "I'm not doing this." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, right. It, but I mean, this... we saw this on Oak Island. Those guys that came yes, and went down that one shaft. Yes, it's that's, it's that's so right. dangerous. It is so dangerous. I mean, that was water, and you know, involved scuba. But like, either way, it's well, like it's a potential bottomless pit. You're that's gonna...
1: true in that case. But also, the last tragedy that befell uh, at least the sixth person to die there if you remember and i think the uh, the curse is that the seventh uh, blah 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 this and that yeah they were in a in a large pit with no water but it was carbon monoxide and that the it wasn't being pumped out efficiently and uh, it's the silent killer and unfortunately uh I think a father and son passed away there uh, and along with somebody else. And if you survive They are trying to save each other. Yeah, you could... uh, It's not good. So very dangerous. In this case, though, this is all fun and games with coast to coast and a hypothetical because people are... There's listeners are still judging like, wait, is this guy telling the truth? What's going on here? Well, so far, it's a good tale. There's nothing too outrageous about it. And before we go any further, and I forget, I will make this declaration now. Upon my natural passing, I don't want anything. Well, wait, wait, wait! wait you don't that. get to pick that. You don't get to pick that part. Okay, once I pass away, I, okay. I there's two scenarios because people often ask me they can't wait till <laughs> I've made this decision or it's been made yeah. for me. What yeah. are you passing away? Two places, either the Water Planet and Interstellar that you have to get to through a black hole. That's a planet with a like a ten thousand foot continuous wave over the entire Water Planet. Yeah, and. uh The actor, Wes, is just continually bobbing up and down. So that's just a long ways away. It's a special place where I'm always in motion, in a suit, just continually riding the waves on some planet that uh, is a black hole away. Okay. Second scenario, Mel's Hole. Okay. If there's some special property, not that I want to come back to life, uh, even as a zombie... Even though that sounds tantalizing, it's just an interesting place to be. You know what I'm saying?
2: Okay, so let me get this straight. Are you going to be, obviously in this case, if you are hoping for the possible zombie right. reignition to be reanimated, I should say, Her. you want to go into the whole intact. Yeah. Don't, please don't, uh, dissect me or vivisect me. No, no, no. Me. I'm just, just saying, don't... obviously, if you were cremated, it'd be hard to reconstitute dust. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you what, if, if I have to be cremated, uh, throw the ashes down there. Okay. So when you die, throw
1: your ashes into Mel's hole. <laughs> okay. I right. just preferably. Go, okay. Can you just say a, that on tape? Like, <laughs> uh, preferably as a whole cadaver. And here's the deal though. See, that's what I was talking about. Cause you might come back out of Mel's hole as a zombie. You know what? This is something that we're going to, we're going to save this for part two about the hypotheticals. Yeah. Because we're going to hear about scenarios where weird stuff has happened that is indirectly connected to this whole. And it makes you wonder if you believe in any of uh, these kind of supernatural or paranormal things at all. Is something like this possible? Are there Earth forces at play here? Much like electronic fog, something weird happening in that because of these depths and what I call extreme physics right. or extreme geophysics in this case, maybe there are some weird anomalies that can happen. Right. And in this case, though, what I would say, upon my demise, there are, out of the two options, number two, Mel's Hole, is a lot more easy for you to achieve right. should you survive right. me. Okay, That's okay. all I'm saying. Unless you can find a rocket, you know, that's... Uh, right. Okay, just to make it easier, just shoot me into a black hole. Yeah, that's that's super easy. Be way easier to yeah, find a hole that, in the ground in, in Washington State, I think. You never know. John Hurt is endlessly sailing through space from uh, the first Alien movie, remember? That's fiction. Okay, so the case here though is that no zombies are coming up. That's just the one story right. of the dog returning. We have other phenomenon, but what Mel is stating here for the record so far is just that it seems very deep. So then people start calling in. They art says, Look, I'm no whole expert. Right. I don't know much about geology. Is there are there any listeners with some comments? And somebody calls in and says, Well, he looked up uh and again, I think they went to the he went to his actual set of encyclopedias folks, the actual books and said, well, I looked up in the, uh, this is Dave from Milwaukee at 16 minutes, uh, 30 seconds into the broadcast. And he says, well, the, I looked up the Marianas Trench and it's 36,000 feet deep. And he says at that time with current mining technology, they can only go down about 1,640 feet. So things and technology have improved since then, 1997, uh, but at that time, he said that's as far as he could research. That was about as far as a, as a drilled mine can go. Okay, just a, a few mine facts here. The deepest mine that I could find, or the article about it uh, in the United States, is the Lucky Friday Mine. That was sunk uh, May twenty fourth, twenty sixteen, and it was a performed by Hecla Mining, and it's called the Historic Lucky Friday Mine near Mullen, Idaho. Uh, does the name Hecla? Sound familiar? Yes, it does. Well, the heiress that stood to inherit all that is from the Mad Doctor of Spokane story. Oh, that's why I know the name of it. Heckler, yeah. Yeah. Oh. Listen to the Mad Doctor of Spokane, but that's what kind of money we're talking about here is yeah. a mining magnate uh, dynasty of sorts. So that is their mine, and that mine's about 1.81 miles deep. And I again, there might be a since then a new and deeper Mine in the US. Right. The deepest mine in the world is the Mapaning gold mine in South Africa. And that is spelled M P O N E N G. And uh, oh, I think that South was profile. I thought it was in China. Yeah, that yeah, was. Yeah. There was a great uh, segment on it and 60 minutes, I believe. Yeah. That gold mine. Uh, that is 2.5 miles deep. China did sink a. Uh, there is a. They're on record for another drilled hole, I believe. Right. So that's uh, different. I, I just, these, are, yeah. these are two different yes.
2: things. Drilling a hole is different from like a functioning mind that human beings and gear are going in and out of.
1: That's know? true. This seems to be natural in some way, at least, uh, well, I don't know, the the top part seems to be pretty round, okay? It's not right. like a, a natural crack karst like Huska. That seemed to be more of a, a deep hole, but a natural fissure. Right. And uh, possibly... Bad gases are coming out of it and making people loopy, seeing all kinds of stuff. Right. In this case, though, doesn't seem to be any gases coming out of it. Doesn't really affect people. So if you ask Alexa, though, what's the deepest natural hole? Like, what's the deepest vertical, you know, naturally occurring opening in the Earth that we know about so far? She responded with, the deepest known open vertical volcanic conduit is Frinnukagir in Iceland. I hope no. I got that right. I'm not looking that up. Uh, okay, no one on <laughs> Icelandic is an interesting but difficult language. T-H-R-I-N-U-K-A-G-I-G-U-R in Iceland. And that is 204 meters deep or 609 feet deep. So that's the, the deepest known natural hole. Right. So that's basically a 60-story building. Yeah, exactly. So here's another theory, though, is that this hole of Mel's may be a lava tube. Right. Coming from, of course, there's a lot of volcanic activity. You Got Mount Rainier to the west. People were thinking like, well, maybe that's what it is. Those can run. uh, It's like a vent tube for a volcano. Well, that's one idea. We're going to explore that in part two. But getting back to the interview here, people are kind of joking around. So somebody calls in with some facts and figures. Like I said, the Marianas Trench is 36,000 feet deep. And the deepest they could drill down with technology for mining at the time in 1997 would be 1,640 feet. So, so, Mel, with his first spool, he's already gone 1,500 yards, I believe. Yes. Three feet to a yard here in the States.
2: Yeah, and it's I said way. feet
1: earlier, but it was yards. You're right. I forgot about that. So, of course, people are calling in and they're having fun discussing stuff. Now, something that Arts said I thought was interesting and possibly viable about why is the government interested in this? He suggested that the government could use it to dispose of nuclear waste. And if it's solid rock, or if it's a, a natural hole in the solid bedrock, well, that's been done too as a safe way to dispose of it where it's not going to leach into anything else. Yeah. And the Hanford nuclear site is only about 45 miles away to the southeast or 100 miles by road. So well, maybe they have an interest in that for the hole, yeah, if it's be. suitable. Mel also thinks maybe this has a Native American sacred aspect to it and and perhaps this was a something used for astronomical sighting you know like at a certain moonrise it had some religious or spiritual significance.
0: this is dr nathan bray thank you for listening to astonishing legends let's get back to the show
2: well so we're getting a little bit further into this initial interview art actually asked mel if he ever felt drawn or compelled to go to the hole mm-hmm. basically intimating that if you ever felt like jumping in or yeah. falling in or whatever and Mel says, no, 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 not not at all. And in fact, the reason I put the lid on it is because it's what they call an attractive nuisance. Um, so folks that have swimming pools will know what an attractive nuisance
1: is. <laughs> you know, where that came up again was part two of Terry Lovelace's, when he's reading the stories. And it's the carousel right. story, our, one of our favorites, I think. Yes. In that the pond there on the farmer's land is an attractive nuisance.
2: Here's a, a little bit of information on an attractive nuisance from the Cornell School of Law. Attractive nuisance is a dangerous condition on a landowner's property that may particularly attract children onto the land and pose a risk to their safety. In tort law, the attractive nuisance doctrine imposes a duty on property owners to treat trespassing children the same as an invitee, and as a result, must exercise reasonable care to eliminate potential dangers or provide adequate warning. That points to a precedent case. I don't know if that one does, or there's another site I was looking at earlier. The the precedent setting case was about a child that broke into a house that was under construction and then fell backwards Mm. through a hole that was created for stairs Mm -hmm. that weren't installed yet. Mm -hmm. And the parent sued and won, I believe. Yeah. So anyway, Mel's worried about this. He's worried about kids falling in the hole, at which point Art is like, and if a kid did fall in there, based on everything we know about it, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't even know about it. They would just have disappeared. Right, right. They would just be gone. Like anything else that falls in the hole that's a living being, if there's no evidence of it on the surface, <laughs> if the hole is truly bottomless, yeah. you would have no idea that it ever went
1: down the hole. That's why Mel constructed a, a metal lid for this thing. Right. So that you couldn't accidentally trip and fall into it. Right, and just to keep stuff out, and unless you're dumping stuff in there, so right, that's what's going on here. And then you know, people are calling in. Uh, Ken from Scottsdale talks uh, about a Chevy falling from the sky. I can't remember that story. Yeah, I think he's referencing a, another Coast to Coast episode because yes, Art is
2: right, like, oh right, yeah, yeah, that's the blah blah blah. But yeah, I don't know that one either. But yeah. real Charles Fort stuff:
1: nuts raining from the sky, Brazil nuts. Uh, art yeah. says he gets nuts raining on his show all the time. Yeah, There's that sense of humor. But what else is happening in the tone of this interview?
2: So it's getting down to the point here where Mel is continuously adding line and adding line and adding line. And he's added what he thinks are 18 spools of this bulk fishing line now, which is putting him down to an estimated length of up to 80,000 feet, which is a little over 15 miles. And as far as he can see... The line is still taut. Mm -hmm. The weight is not touching the bottom. 15 miles down, this would be far and away a Guinness World Record for the deepest hole on Earth if this was true. Yeah. And so people are starting to try to do some math here. What is going on? All right, so it's 20-pound test. How much... Does that weigh? Someone calls in and says, well, how much does the line itself weigh? And I love this because when this person called in, I was I was having that exact question in my right. head at that exact moment. It was so satisfying to hear someone call and go, well, and you and I talked about this offline before we recorded tonight. If you've ever flown a kite super high, which of course was always my goal, was to fly mm-hmm. the kite as high as possible. Mm-hmm. I did the same thing. I would have a fishing pole. I would put a ton of line on it and use the pole to get the kite way out. And this is down at the beach where the wind's always blowing here in North Carolina. And I flew kites that were so high up you couldn't see the kite. All you could see was the string going up into the sky and they had just Mm -hmm. become so tiny. But what you do see is that the string, even monofilament, it has a lot of weight to it. And all that weight is going out. And eventually what you see is the line it's very parabolic. It's going out yeah. almost flat and then curving up into the sky and then you can't see the kite anymore. Right. So the same thing is happening here, folks. If you're running this line down into this well and you have 80,000 feet of fishing line, that has some weight to it. So folks are asking Mel what the weight of that is. And at this point, he's like, you know, I don't really know. I don't know. I have, I have not yeah. weighed the spool of line with the line on it and with it off to calculate the difference so that I can tell you how much a full roll of the monofilament weighs. If I did know that, I could then take that weight and multiply it times 17 or 18 Mm -hmm. and calculate the weight of the entire contraption, including the one pound weight at the end of the very first spool that's already all the way down at the bottom or at the end of the line, there is no bottom. It gets to a point near the end of this very first call. Again, Mel is like, you swear to me on all that is (laughs) sacred to you that you are telling the absolute unadulterated truth. Right. And Mel says, this is my, this is my hole, and this yeah. is the truth about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is my hole. So Art is really fascinated with the hole. Mm-hmm. They've covered just about everything there is about it. They touch again on this dog that supposedly came back to life. Art loved that factor, I, I think. Uh, and then Mel makes the point, though, I don't know of anyone who threw the dead cows. There's been no stories of any of the dead cows coming back to life and wandering around. Well, they're a lot harder to uh,
1: maybe identify in that, uh, unless you're a rancher. I don't rancher. know, if you're
2: a farmer, yeah, you're a rancher, you know your cows. It's I mean... just a cow
1: on the loose. I mean, because the story as it gets retold over the next few years is that the dog was seen with uh, just hunting on its own, like it right. was stalking an animal yeah. with another hunter or seen in town. So, you know, it's like any good tall tale, little elements here change. Uh, Here and there, but this alone, though, this is pretty interesting, and it would be something fun to. This is something I currently would dream of having on my own property because it's just an anomaly, and uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really throw trash down it, but I, you know, maybe send a payload with a little bit of scientific gear on it just to see how far down can I go. Because think about this, folks: get in your car and at sixty miles an hour, drive for fifteen miles. Takes a bit. Takes 15 minutes. So that's what I'm saying (laughs) is that if you're unspooling line at a much slower pace, and that's what Mel says later, I was like, well, I would get some kind of motorized thing to really spool this up because even just bringing that line up again, even if it's piling up, it's caught up on a route somewhere and he just thinks that there's no bottom, it's a lot to spool up. What I'm saying is 15 miles of line is pretty far. Right. It's interesting. And what I like about the story, though, is that he's a bit of a mindset like us, right? Right. His curiosity is really getting him to experiment with this, reaching out, asking others about it. There are some other people that I know that are, let's say, more practical. They would just keep using it as a dump and never wonder why. That could be happening all over the world for all we know. That's true.
2: All right, so that ends the first appearance of Mel on Coast to Coast, and a couple of days later, literally two days later, on February 24th of 1997, which is a Monday, the first call-in was a Friday, Saturday, overnight, and then he calls back on Monday and has a lot more details, and a lot of things have changed for Mel at Mel's property. So Art is now, he's coming back in. It's two days after Mel first came on the show. He's been getting a lot right. of feedback from his audience. They want to know more. They're like, wait, you, what is yeah. going on? He actually used the word dangling. You left us dangling. What's happening? <laughs> the other thing it apparently did was, uh, if you believe any of this at all, sparked a mm. lot of interest In Mel's property from some outside forces, Uh, he sent a new
1: fax in to Art. Uh, Force, do you have that second fax? I transcribed Art reading the fax. This is the second fax about this that he's got. You could say that the story takes an interesting turn here. Like I said, it just could have gone away, another goofball, funny story that ends up on late night talk radio. But it gets a little deeper here. And what I will say again is that I I look at all of our stories, there are three options. All of it's true, none of it's true, or it's a combination of both. Right. We don't know yet. We're pieces together. So if you look at it though, as none of it being true, it's like, this is pretty well done. I will give this gentleman a a Hugo (laughs) award for his tall tale here. So as Scott just said, Mel comes back on the show two days later, and it's now February 24th, 1997, I believe. This is the second interview, and Art mentions that he talked to Mel on Friday night into Saturday morning on that last hour of the program, and now there's an update on what may be the deepest hole ever, and as Art says, this is Mel's hole, part two. Earlier in the day, Art and the show gets this fax, and it reads, Art, You're receiving this fax simultaneously with the fax I attempted to send you earlier today. Much has developed since the first fax. I'll try to explain as rationally as possible what has transpired since my earlier fax. Around 1 p.m., I drove to Yakima to shop at the Costco there. On my way back, I decided to stop at the property. When I got there, my access road was blocked by military personnel that were armed. I noticed that several pieces of yellow gear had entered and exited my property based on the direction of their thread. That's what Art said. I think he meant tread though. Yes, It may be a misspelling. Yeah. I asked one of the guards, what's going on? And he said there was a plane crash on the property. I said, well, that's strange. I told him there's no smoke. I don't see any in the distance. He asked who I was and I let him know I own the property. I then asked to talk to the officer in charge. A non uniformed man came up to my Suburban and let me know that I won't have access to my property until the crash has been completely investigated. I mentioned the yellow gear and the lack of smoke and that they were on my property. I was told by this man that it's not necessarily my property, and that it would be very easy to find a drug lab on my property. Well, I got the drift. I asked if I could leave and he said, sure, don't come back until we contact you. I asked if he wanted a way to contact me and he said, they know how to contact me. I said, I suppose you don't want me to talk to anybody about this. He said, nobody would believe it anyway. Well, that's about it for now. Oh, I talked to one of my neighbors earlier today and he told me something very interesting. He said that some time ago, he was driving up to the hole at night and thought he saw the most bizarre thing. He said he saw a beam of solid black coming out of the then-uncovered hole. I said, what do you mean? He said he saw something blacker than black coming out of the hole, like a searchlight reaching into the sky as far as he could see. And then Art comes back and says, well, there you have it. There actually is more from the state of Washington. Here's Mel.
2: Yeah, so now Mel has back on the horn, Art presumably calling him and saying, hey, I got your fax. And Art makes a big point in talking about how upset Mel was when he reached him. So this is yeah. another thing to think about if you believe any of this at all. When you get into the story of all this, and if you presume that Art is being truthful, which I think he is in terms of his interactions, when he called mm-hmm. Mel off the air and said, hey, do you want to come back on? And they were talking yeah. off the air. and And presumably based on these conversations earlier in the day, he's able to describe Mel as being very, very upset, which yeah. means, if this is a hoax, that Mel was acting in a one-on-one conversation with Art Bell about right. how scared and nervous he was and Art was believing that. And now, to be fair, Art loves these kind of stories sure, and openly sure. admitted to being taken in by the Blair Witch Project at the beginning of one of these episodes. <laughs> no, it's do. funny, I was showing that to my son the other day. My wife and I were like, oh, this will be fun, like last Halloween or something, we turned it on. Yeah, it was streaming. It was like Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever. And we we're like, isn't this cool? And we we're telling him, it's real. It's real. It's found footage. It's real. <laughs> and then he's like, I got to go to the bathroom, pause it. And you pause it. And then all the actor's names come up at the bottom. It's like, you oh, idiots. <laughs> Why would you have x-ray or whatever you call that stupid on the yes. Blair you way- Do not. Oh, and it's I like see. pictures of them in their headshots. And I was like, you just ruined the entire movie. You stupid streaming platform. <laughs> And Ro was they, like, I knew it immediately. My son was like, okay, knew- you, were, you were trying to lead him on for a little bit of Halloween fun. That's the whole point of the film. I, I know, mean, it's stupid. Anyway, I'm still mad about it. They ruined it. You ruined <laughs> it. Getting back to this phone call now. It's it's the new call. Mel and Art are talking. Mm-hmm. He's, t- he's explaining how there's armed soldiers on his land. At first, he said there was just like a small... Barrier of some kind, but then it wound up being Jersey barriers, explain later for uh, folks. That, and R wasn't familiar with that, with what that was, but it, I know because I'm from the yeah. East Coast and I think must, yeah. but that's just the things you see on the freeway that go up to divide lanes during construction. They have a little bit of an incline on their side because they're actually designed. Yeah. My dad's a civil engineer, so I know this. They're actually designed so that if a car runs up on them, it directs it back onto the road. But they're concrete. Anytime there's a terror thing or your barrier or mm-hmm. whatever, you put that down, and and Mel was saying, you know, they were there. You could still drive between them, but
1: there's right. a couple of armed guys. We call them K-rails down here in SoCal.
2: Yeah, uh, okay. K-rails, yeah.
1: But, that, K-rails. you know, yeah, and they'll use them also when there's a heavy rain and it's flooding to help divert water. They're totally useful for a lot of uh, reasons. I've also seen this one. I can't remember if it was when I was driving through New Jersey on, yeah. a, uh, on a show, but like they have machine, giant machines that will lay these down like a zipper. Yeah. Uh, and they, they, d- they to, do
2: that every yeah. day outside of New York city because there's a lane they dedicate to the buses going in and out of the city during rush hour. Yeah. And every day they switch that lanes direction from forward to backward with right. one of those zipper barrier things. Yes. So coming back around to what's happening now, the military has taken over Mel's property. The military has taken over Mel's hole. So that's uh, obviously producing problems. He can't get onto his own land. And then on top of that, they wind up threatening him. They're saying, hey, you know what? If you don't get out of here, we might find a drug lab on your property. At which point he's like, oh no. And then Art's like, wait, you got a drug lab? And Mel is like, (laughs) Well, actually, and then you're like, oh, this whole story just took a turn. But here's the thing. Mm -hmm. It's not a drug lab. It's not controlled substances or narcotics. It's homeopathic remedies that he is apparently interested in that he's been taking from Native American. Right lore and contacts that he has who are advising him about this stuff that he's trying to grow and he's doing something with that. That's his main business, apparently.
1: Yeah. And I will put a finer point on this because I know that homeopathy is a trigger word for a lot of people like, okay, nutcase, wacko, that's all pseudo medicine doesn't work. He never says homeopathy. What Mel says is that he's in the alternative health field. And yeah. then he has a sort of lab because, again, it's nothing illegal. He, he always states that. It's like, look, there's nothing you can arrest me for. None of this is illegal substances. I'm not growing anything. No wacky wacky. This is just herbs that are natural that are old, ancient, perhaps Native American cures that he's really interested in. And so he has some alcohol and he has some solvents to break these down. And and that's what he's working with here. So he said, it's not really a lab, but yeah, there's, there's a few chemicals, but it's certainly nothing that you would find in a meth lab, right? But that doesn't matter because as we know, with the, let's say authorities, they don't have to actually find anything. All they have to do is plant the idea. If you're trying to win public opinion on something, it's like, we found something on your computer. That's all they have to say. And you can take your imagination further and, and figure out what I'm saying here is that, how do you know They just have to say they found it. So it's very easy for them. And it's also very easy for them to stick that on your computer without your knowledge. Right. So again, I'm not getting into conspiracy land here. I'm just saying that Mel is a little concerned and like, yeah, I know that threat is real. Yeah. He says,
2: I do have a lab. I do have solvents. And he goes so far as to say, this is a very particular plant that the Native Americans have known about for a long time. And it actually flourishes in Northern Nevada. Mm -hmm. I also have it here is what he's saying. And he's working with uh, the Native American community on developing uses for it. And he says specifically something to the effect that the Indians used it at the time, his words, not mine, to treat various illnesses with it, mostly cold and flu. Yeah. So just quickly, and I want to get more into this in part two, when we get into the, you know, more into the weeds, as it were. I did find a paper an academic paper from the University of Nevada called "The Washoe Tribe and a Simple Herbal Remedy for a Mass Murderer" and the mass murder in this case would be the flu. Mm-hmm. How fifty million deaths may have been avoided. Right. A student wrote this in uh, the summer of 2012 for the Department of Pathology, and it talks about how this may have averted a lot of the deaths from the Spanish flu, and is a particular plant called Lomadium, Lomadium, or L-O-M-A-T-I-U-M. and this is apparently a plausible treatment for flu-like conditions. And I think the name for it is biscuit root. Yeah. And it grows specifically in Northern Nevada. And he doesn't ever say, Mel never says this is what I'm growing, but that's what right. I think it is personally. But he's making it clear, this isn't a narcotic and it's not. Yeah. You can read that paper. We'll have a link to that paper in our show links. That was a freely available. It was not on JSTOR. And so, but he has a lab and in this lab, he's processing this stuff. So he's essentially being blackmailed. But the other right. thing that's happening is now he's also starting to get interest in having the property purchased. And at which point Art is like, wait, is this your property? And he jokingly says, well, mine in the banks this time. There is another time when he says, <laughs> yes, later on, he goes, no, it's my, it was my wife's. And then right. they're talking about separating. So I do have some questions about that. But Art is like, well, it looks like they're getting you coming and going here, because Mm -hmm. they're either going to blackmail you and put you in jail for having a drug lab on your property, or they're going to offer to buy it from you. And so he's talking a little bit about this, but he also seems like he wants to answer some of the questions that came up in his first appearance. Right. So he's gone and done a little bit of the math on the fishing line, for example. And he got like a, a fish scale spring, you know, the hook that hangs down, and a little bit unscientifically, but scientifically, he came to the conclusion, based on doing some weight experiments, that with the 18 spools that he had and the one-pound weight, that he had probably 17 or 18 pounds of weight on the line. Mm-hmm. And it's 20-pound test. So in theory, it was near its breaking point when it got to 80,000 feet. Mm-hmm. And this is another interesting thing. When you think about the construction of a hoax or the construction of a true story, he has taken a specific question about how this could possibly work and he's coming back and answering it two days later he's also right. saying that after he went on the radio things have escalated the land has been taken right from the military right. is there they're threatening to put me in jail or disappear me and or also someone's trying to buy it right, so there's a lot right. of things that have happened and this is just in two days
1: he's recounting the story just for people that have not heard it and you have to assume as we do not everybody listens to every episode so we seem like we're repeating ourselves i'm sure to people who hear every episode but we know right. that some topics don't ring with people with coast to coast i'm not available to listen at 10 p.m to 2 a.m sometimes yes. and i miss stuff so he. He's just repeating. They're going over the the elements of the story, but here's something that was not mentioned in the first interview. I found this to be quite interesting. A little tidbit here is that Mel retells the black beam story. Remember the the, the beam of uh, blacker than black blackness shooting straight out of the hole, yes. and essentially Mel's saying, "Yeah, I didn't see these things. These are what neighbors have told me and people that I know." And Mel, of course, talks to his neighbors. Now, they're not very close. This is a rural area. You can't see them through the kitchen window. They are, I don't know how far away the next property is. But as Scott described earlier, there is no landline there. There is a collection of outbuildings and trailers. And that's where he goes up to, again, work on his medicinal plants and herbs and other neighbors have farms and rural property like people do. And so they're not real close. And just quickly, I said they had no power.
2: He did have solar. He indicated that they had solar prior to the snowstorm that destroyed a bunch of the buildings, right. which they they had a snowstorm that uh, where they had, he said, 24 inches yeah. in, in one falling. So Yeah.
1: And they had cell phones. So they have communication. Yeah. But again, it's undeveloped yeah. property of sorts. But it's his or actually it's his wife's and the bank's. One thing he said, though, is that the neighbors do talk. They go down to the cafe like all you know, rural people do, like they do in Enfield, Illinois, and they discuss stuff in the day. And so talk of the hole is common knowledge. People dump their crap in there. And here's something interesting, though, is that he did talk to his very elderly neighbor, as he describes him. And his neighbor told him that way back when, maybe 40 to 50 years ago, the hole didn't look exactly like it does now. The neighbor said, this elderly neighbor who's, uh, yeah, he's probably in his 80s now, he said, around the hole was a series of stone columns. And Mel had his power book with him, and he pulled up a picture of Stonehenge. And the old neighbor said, that's exactly what that thing looked like. Standing stones looking just like that, except though, without the top stones, like a dolman. We've talked about this before. Two standing stones with a table stone on the top of it, that would be, I, I believe, a dolmen and the standing stones without any top stone. That's more like a megalith or a menhir. M E N H I R. So, at ancient heritage sites, you'll see both types. Often they are a burial site, like a dolmen will have a burial or a sacred spot underneath it. And Other stones they believe, like Stonehenge, could be celestial sighting or ceremonial arrangements or actual burial sites themselves. That's totally fascinating to me. What he's describing is like, yeah, there used to be stones there. Maybe they fell in and now they're in another dimension. The old gentleman did not say that. That's my imagination. I'm just saying that, uh, yeah, he said that's exactly what it looked like. Those standing stones lining the perimeter of the hole yeah and
2: this was the first point in the story i was like okay (laughs) what that's Uh, that's unbelievable right right yeah i mean i was i was bought on the
1: 80,000 feet of
2: 15 miles deep we threw a dead cow in there the dog came back a black beam of black dark (laughs) light came out of it and I was okay with all of that. Yeah. And then I was like, and it looked like Stonehenge. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Now, hold on a
1: second. But it He's, doesn't anymore. But it used to. It used to look like Stonehenge. No, there may have been stones around it. We, again, we don't know. It's like, this is what we yeah, found but out they also go? with Tiwanaku. Stones are big. No, no. It, what I'm saying is that things change over time, right? Things come and go. Not rocks. At, at Tiwanaku, remember, they calculated that the the pillars there at the one plaza were not a filled in fence the pillars were freestanding and had space between them mm-hmm. sometime during the turn of the you know the 1890s when it was first explored and noted and perhaps the 1960s somebody filled those in with right. fitted stones why did they do that again we talked about this it's like okay maybe they're just thinking like this would make a better tourist attraction it looks more attractive it's more finished. It's ours to mess with anyway, so butt out, we're going to do this,
2: yeah, but that's thousands of years in this case now, and I because I read in the course of I can't even remember right. where it was now, but the suggestion that Ellensburg is one hundred and fifty years old, yeah, and these people, if you're going to the old man who had it before, right. it's everybody who's been there since people have been there. Mm-hmm. if he remembers the columns, then it's something that happened in the past hundred and fifty years, probably it's a it's infinitesimal amount of chronological time compared to Tiwanaku. No, we're not saying that they disappeared with erosion. That's
1: not the point here, is that we... No, or with anything, with a group of people, whatever, word would get out. Not necessarily. Look, if it was before the guy, look, people do all kinds of weird stuff with their property, right? So in the late 1850s, 1860s, that's when farmers started digging up and digging into the mounds that were on their property. And they didn't care. Yeah. They want to move this dirt. Guess what? It's an ancient burial site of the mound builders, people. Yeah, right. They didn't care. It's like, hey, I found a bunch of metal crap. You want it? <laughs> you yeah. know, Then it gets controversial. But at the time, the rules were different. They didn't care. They want to move this stuff. What I'm saying is that people do weird things with their property. If you've ever True. lived in a rural area. and you You write, okay, so then, like, I'm not going to name names, but... I've known neighbors to do like, why did you put that there? Yeah. Or why did you remove that? That looked actually kind of nice. Yeah. People have odd ideas. If it's near the hole, I could see people like, hey, let's shove that into the hole. You that standing stone. <laughs> right, right. Okay, Regardless right. of how, I was thinking when I heard this, that it had some Native American value to it. That perhaps it was viewed as a sacred site, as we've known before. Anything with the land that is different is viewed with more reverence. Yeah. Like whether it's Pilot Mountain, which you took me by on our last little road trip. It's like, yeah, that's pretty interesting looking. Or Devil's Tower. I can see why people would count these things as special. And in the literal reverse of that, when you have a really deep hole, I can see why people would mark that as being significant. So who knows? Again, this is part of the legend and lore of Mel's Hole. Now, again, people are calling in and faxing in with different ideas. And some of these are actually pretty interesting. Art reads a fax from a person, he thought it was pretty interesting that uh, this person writes in, imagine two naturally occurring iron veins just happening to reach towards the Earth's surface around Menashtash, Washington. There is tremendous amount of naturally generated high voltage electricity deep in the Earth. What if the bottom of the hole on Mel's property is a naturally occurring focal point, a lot like the device that Mr. Markham built? Now, that's another story, I believe, of a... uh, I didn't want to go down that hole, so we'll leave that to other folks. I believe he did say Mr. Markham, and it's probably another coast-to-coast story. The fax goes on to say, the Earth can have its own, in effect, time machine. Over the centuries, through various quakes and so forth, all of the soil above the portal will have fallen into the bottom and been launched into some other time. This explains the lack of echoes and the apparent depth of the hole tell Mel to lower a clock down there. And here's another side thing, which is kind of funny. And again, part of the humor of this story is that here's all this crap and trash being thrown in there for 150 years and it's popping out and some other, (laughs) it's coming out somewhere. It's like, who keeps littering here? It's like a black hole. Now there's theoretically white holes where celestial objects might emerge. We don't know. Where is this stuff going? If you think it's going to some deep underground military base, a dumb, then somebody is clogging up the hatch there, like in Lost. There's a hatch that's sealed, and it's mysterious, and uh, it actually goes somewhere. And now somebody's very upset because in some other dimension, they're getting a bunch of dead cows and garbage. Right.
2: Hello everyone. I'm Zach from the podcast Ghost Stories of Canada. I love Astonishing Legends so much. What do you say we get back to Scott and Forrest right now?
1: Here's another interesting thought that a lot of our listeners might find interesting. Mel says that he was over at the university library looking for info about the Earth's geology. And Mel mentions that he came across uh, something that's anomalous within the Earth's crust called the Moho discontinuity. Now, we're not going to go into that now, but uh, that's just something interesting having to do with P waves that react differently in an anomalous way through the Earth's crust between the mantle and the crust. And that's why they call it a discontinuity. It does not act as scientists would predict. So there are some strange things under the soil there, and maybe this is one of them. Again, Mel and Art are going back and forth. They're
2: speculating because one of the things these guys said, the military guys said, there was a plane crash. You can't go on here. It's a plane right. crash. And Mel's like, where's the smoke? I didn't see smoke. I don't hear anything. It's mm-hmm. only a mile and a half away. He did indicate that it's kind of down in a dip. So from the access road, you can't lay eyes on the, on the hole. But he also said that his neighbors had seen a, quote, parade of military vehicles going onto the land, buildings being brought in. There's helicopters. It's
1: like- You know what this has turned into- Close, close encounters. encounters. It is yeah. exactly Piggly wiggly encounters. vans and, and, and trucks. Yeah. And, uh, you know, suddenly you've got uh, guys in hazmat suits spraying knockout gas to pigeons. Another caller calls in and is like, do you have a criminal
2: record, Mel? And which is interesting because I think yeah. people are starting to like, they're hearing about this lab mm. and people are a little incredulous about the lab and the native plants. And he's like, no, I don't have a criminal record. And then the guy's like, this is why we need a militia. And so <laughs> then Jeez. they get into this whole thing about property rights, right. which yeah, granted the government came, seized as property, but in the Pacific Northwest, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not from that region. Mm. Although I understand that you might be, but people take land rights very mm. seriously. People
1: in rural areas, that's what their livelihood is, is yeah, the exactly. land. You know, yeah. if you're an urban person, your, your plot of land is very small. Yes. It's not such a factor. You're not growing anything, you're not raising anything, and you're not accustomed to all that space. So it's a different sensibility, let's say.
2: Well, so here is a call. This was one that really struck a chord with me mm-hmm. in the opposite direction of the Stonehenge comments from the neighbor. A gentleman called in uh, named Scott from Kirkland, yes.
1: Washington. I remember that.
2: Yes. And he ha- had gone to school in the area. And in 1989 and 90, he actually had heard stories about a bottomless pit mm-hmm. near Ellensburg. From his professor, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah from his professor who had uh, been at the school for a long, long time, which I thought was really fascinating. So, okay, now you've got some more coming into the story. So now you're getting back to, okay, well, if you believe any of this at all, is mm-hmm. this a hoax? it's a chicken and the egg thing. Mel clearly knows the area. He's really lives there. There's a lot of real, maybe he really has property and all right. that. And maybe he too has heard that story and he listens to Coast to Coast and he's like, oh, I can weave this all in and it'll yeah. be amazing. Maybe. Right. Again, keeping in mind that as you said, he baited Art into calling right. him with a fax. He didn't call him I gotta tell you about this hole. Right. He's just right. like, if any of your listeners know what this is, let me know. That's like straight out of the Spycraft yeah. book. It's just like if you know anything about this, I'm just going to walk away. <laughs> Here's this fax. Well... You found your mark, and the mark is Art Bell. Now he's getting reeled in, and right. so is his entire audience. And you're doing this just for fun, because there's yeah. not a lot of money in it. And in fact, it, t- it might turn into a pain in the butt. Well, look, you don't have to
0: call
1: back. Like the guy who's, I'm flying into Area 51, and the line goes dead. What yeah. happened to him? It's like, that's eh, a great hoax. Perhaps it's a fun story you got on the air on the biggest talk show overnight in the country. That's right. So you got your prank jollies from that. But if you look at this case, you could fax them and guess what? Well, uh, sadly, you're right into a show and uh, they don't have time to respond or they get too many responses. I don't know what that's like at all. I have no reference for that. I'm not answering emails to the show. You didn't respond anyway, as we uh, sadly (laughs) can all the time. But what I'm saying is that you're taking a, you know, if you've got this prank, maybe Art picks up on it. Maybe he doesn't. If you have some other ulterior motive, you're going to have to follow up as far as trying to scope out if this is a hoax or not. One, from listening to Mel, he does really seem like he knows the area. Yeah. He is really, I believe, from central Washington. Is he from Yakima? Is he from Ellensburg? Who knows? But he does seem to me to be someone from Washington state, or again, it could be Oregon, could be Northern Idaho. He's from the region. He just, he has that vibe to me. Like you. Uh, Yeah, I'm, I'm from there. And uh, that's the running gag is that I don't want people that I care about harassed by people that may call into shows like that in ours. So that's what I'm saying is that (laughs) people will do that. And uh, folks, it's disturbing when somebody calls you on your cell phone and you have no idea how they got that number. Yeah. That's all I'll say. The second thing I will say is that I'm trying to get a picture of like, who's this Mel really like then? If he's from the area, how could you find him? Was he with the military perhaps? Well, in his terminology at the beginning, when he's saying like, oh, these guys, these soldier guys showed up. People I know who are ex-military will usually incorporate some terms. When we talk to those uh, really fun guys, remember in the uh, Pirate Lafitte? Yes. You know, he was a former uh, military and he was like, yeah, I got out the binox for yeah. binoculars. Yeah. Those terms will usually pass down. I hear it with my own dad. I, I come from a military family. You will hear some of those terms being passed down. I didn't really hear that with Mel, but he did say something that kind of uh, stuck out to me. He says this quite a bit. It's like, I on the property, yeah, there was a, there was a bunch of snow. It caved in uh, some of our buildings, and I saw a lot of yellow gear. Yeah. And he says yellow gear quite a few times.
2: Yes, thought, he does. I was wondering about that. I don't know what that means. I mean, I presumed he meant caterpillars, but I, I don't yes. know. Yes. Well,
1: that was yeah. my assumption at first, but I thought like, you know what? I don't hear that uh, from my purported area a lot. Yeah. And I just thought like, is that a military term then? And I looked it up, and apparently it is a Navy term. Because oh, somebody asked that about uh, NCIS. Uh, oh, I yeah. heard them say, like, get, you know, get that yellow gear organized on the deck or whatever. And somebody responded, like, currently there are more than 50 different types of MHE, commonly referred to as yellow gear, utilized throughout the Navy, ranging from different types of pallet jacks and forklifts to loading platforms, tractors and cranes, and MHE standing for material handling equipment. Oh, So then I wondered, like, okay, is, uh, is Mel, was Mel in the Navy? Well you know, I'm trying to piece together. It's like, is this somebody with a good story that is carefully seeding some bits of information and withholding others and making it seem like he doesn't know about this, or he knows Mm -hmm. a lot about this? Is this that level of deception? Or is this just a genuine guy? Because when you hear him, he's, he seems very genuine. He seems very trustworthy down to earth. Yes, he could be writing a hoax, of course, and you just tell Art, you're not but he doesn't sound like a, a lot of other people. And what I will say, we've talked about this before. When we get an email of somebody with an incredible story, what we notice or just doesn't smell right is they come out of the gate with a bunch of really over-the-top outrageous stuff. And it's just right. the way that it's... Look, it, a lot of the emails we get, it's all outrageous, right? And you're talking right. about, I had a shadow person experience or this is happening or, you know, to our family. We're being haunted. But when somebody... Talks about something that doesn't fit the usual stories. That's yeah. a red flag to us. It's like, okay, well, what are you getting at here? And you find out, like, I want to come on the show. I want to plug my my book or my screenplay, or I'm doing this, where it's another podcast. It's like, right. okay, it just doesn't ring true. Here in this thing, it's it's expertly laid out in that it's bits leading up to uh, more of a crescendo. And then it's knitted together with some head scratchers that are real, like a caller. Uh, Scott from Kirkland says also that, uh, guess what's nearby? The Yakima Firing Center. Huge military training base uh, where they did desert storm training. There are satellite dishes that uh, aren't supposed to be there that they won't admit to. Secret stuff is going on there. They're close by. If they found out about something that's even kind of an anomaly that they can either take advantage of or is a threat to their training, they're going to want to investigate it and seize it. That's right. Poof, you're a drug dealer. <laughs> well, here's Pick the me thing. me a banana. Yeah, here's the thing. You know, Mel is <laughs> okay, just saying, look, look, look I, I'm <laughs> being honest. <laughs> I don't have anything to fear, but really there doesn't have to be anything concrete. And so uh, what he's saying though is that they seem to be hitting me at both ends here because they're saying like, you don't want to cross us. Also, we might make this worth your while. What do you think? Yes. He seeds something, Mel does, that's interesting. He makes one statement and says, well, you know what? If a deal is offered, I might want to get out of the country. I might like to go to Australia. And then somebody says, oh, like where Stan Dale is? And I, I don't know who that is. But Mel responds, yeah, someplace that is geologically sound. And they all have a laugh. So, In any case, if you believe Mel in a story, he's pretty shook up now. He doesn't know what's going on. He just knows that now he may be a pawn in some bigger story. Forrest, do you know the expression when somebody says something's a little too pat from like playing cards, right? Mm
2: -hmm. All right. And so for people that don't know, if you you never play cards... In terms of uh, having a pat hand, that means that everything plays. You don't even, you uh. don't have a discard. Like if you're playing a rummy game, you just put it all uh. down on the table. You've got the perfect hand. It's pat.
1: Right. That's because your relatives uh, do play bridge?
2: Contract rummy. That was a game they used to play. It was <laughs> okay. so much fun. Okay. And um, so, you know, it's a rummy game. You have to get two straights of four and a set of three or whatever. And if in mm-hmm. the last hand, there'd be like eight hands. And that last hand always had to be a pat hand, which meant... You couldn't go down on the table until you were ready to go down on the table without a discard. So you had to keep drawing until you got your perfect hand. That's a pat hand. So Mm -hmm. the first thing that felt pat to me about this was when he said, you know, gee, I'd really like to go to Australia. Mm. That would be something. Mm -hmm. And it didn't feel that way in the moment, but it felt that way in the next moment that we're about to talk to you about now. This all leads up to... Mel's third appearance on Coast to Coast. And Mm -hmm. a significant amount of time passes here between that last one. So again, to look at this timeline, the first one was February 22nd, 1997. Then two days later on February 24th, he calls back or Art gets in touch with him and says, what's going on? He's like, my land's been taken over by the military. I can't get onto it. All these people start calling in. You need to form a militia. There, you know, it's all kinds of conversation mm-hmm. about how to fix the problem. He's like, I don't know. They, they told me that they're gonna say I have a drug lab, or they're gonna, you know, there's an offer to buy it. Right. And, and then he's like, I wish I could go to Australia. Well, then he disappears, mm-hmm. essentially from coast to coast. Anyway, he gets back in touch with Coast to Coast in April of 2003. To four years later, he's been gone.
1: So you're talking now. This is the third call in the year 2000. That's right. Okay. He is now
2: returned to the United States after several years in Australia. Art backs <laughs> right, up. Right, Art right. says I received communications from him that were definitely from Australia. Yes, that's uh, true. In whatever way I don't, he doesn't, and he doesn't need to. I believe Art. He doesn't need to go into the details on that. But Art said no, he was there. That's where the communications came from. So I do believe if you believe any of this at all, mm-hmm. that after Mel's hole was confiscated by the military, he made his way to Australia. And I do think he really went to Australia, even if this was a hoax. I do right. believe he really went to
1: Australia. I will agree on that point. And here's the other thing. I, I know it sounds, like I said, I brought up the premise that perhaps he was seeding the story. It's like, well, you don't feel surprised. Or sometimes I'm, I'm down under and I'm in Australia. Yeah. Like he's yeah. he's preparing, he's laying out the story but figure this, folks, this is three years later <laughs> that, Yeah, that he's yeah. paying off that part of the story. I want to set the, the mindset here just quickly, is that at the end of the last call, the second call, Art on the air says he feels kind of bad because yeah. if this is true, just talking to Mel has ruined his life in a way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's got yeah. the feds on him. He's had to move. Uh, All this stuff has been threatened with imprisonment and been threatened. He's freaked out. And that shouldn't happen when you call into a a fun show like this. But suddenly he sparked the interest of that's the other thing. Are they listening? How did that happen? Are they monitoring everything? And they're finding I think Echelon was up and running by that point, too. And did they just listen to keywords? What's going on? Somebody speculated that HARP. The HARP program, which of course people think is part of some conspiracy there, that that was clandestinely used to detect holes and tunnels. Of course, your, right. your, your adversaries or or drug lords or this and that. Is that something they found out through the Heart program? You know, there's all these the speculation, but basically artists saying, like, I, I feel really bad if there's anything I can do, we'll help you out. That's the last he heard from him in that second call. Now it's from 1997 to 2000, some years have passed, and the tone has changed. When he gets back on the phone, he sounds a little different. Yeah. He has the same elements of the story. But at this point,
2: I myself thought he was a different person. But I then realized there is a wide disparity in the quality of archived coast-to-coast stuff that you that get is online. Between whether if it's on a YouTube thing or it's in their own archives, it's just all over the place. And at first I was convinced, we have a, a, a friend who is a former law enforcement expert, I asked him to listen to it because I was just like, do you think this is the same guy? Because I feel like, and he's like, no, I I think it actually is that there's a pitch or a tone shift or something. And then once I thought about that, I agreed too, because, but then I caught a couple of colloquialisms that Mel used across the three-year gap. And one of them was, I don't have it handy. And he right. said that again, right. Right. and that's just one of those throwaway phrases, like you were talking about the military phrases, Binox or whatever, that's a throwaway phrase that it's very hard as an actor to pretend to do again if you're impersonating a person. So yeah. I, I debunked my own idea <laughs> right. that the third call was coming from a different person pretending to be male because it sounded so different. Once I heard him say, I don't have it handy, yeah. and I knew that he had said that a couple of times before back yeah. in 1997. So just a little thing I'm putting out there. I mean, not that anyone can't, you know, people are going to be like, oh, anyone can say that. But you I could. But to pick out that little phrase, that little affectation, that's going to take a real skilled
1: professional in terms of hoaxing something. Yes. So what I would say is the practicality of it, again, for what purpose other than to be in the show, is that then you have a really obsessive person who wants to imitate Mel. Now, this is something yeah, that Yeah, Art that's Art like said Bill Hader.
2: I know people like this, by <laughs> the way. That is an immense amount of talent and focus. That is not your average person right, that it right, takes right. to do an impersonation like that. Very rare that people can do that.
1: Right. So you have you have that running. Now, Art did say before is that, of course, he got, a, let's say, a decent uh, two handfuls of a bunch of Mel impersonators. Calling it like, oh, Mel, I want to tell you more about the hole. Yeah, and and he did talk about that. Yeah, he did talk about it. And he said, look, I got this guy's phone number, okay? Yeah, you
2: know what else I bet Art does off the air? I bet he's got secret passphrases with his guests once he identifies them because when you do that's what I would do we don't have a lot of callers calling in but if we had I would be like okay you know it's like Star Trek and the chess game queen to queen's level three (laughs) or whatever you don't (laughs) have the right answer you're not the dude I talked to before
1: exactly and I'm sure
2: that he was taking steps like
1: that so when he was talking to him back in in 2000 in 1997 and now we're talking about 2000 he had established a rapport and he is certain this is the real Mel now when you hear it you could say like oh it's a different guy what I will say in pro profiling who this Mel might be, what we heard in the, in the 1997 thing is that he's an older gentleman. He will later say that he's pretty much retired. He still tinkers with his herbs. It is keeping active that way, but he's essentially retired, but you can hear him shifting in his chair. Like, like I do now. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Cause I'm, yeah. As you get older then like you get up. He also mentions in
2: the 2000 call that he's about to turn 68. So we actually have his
1: age now as folks age, and I've heard this with my own mother and in just a few years, her voice has changed a little, you know, people get older, yeah. they're, let's say a little bit more gravelly or you know so it does happen to folks as you get older that didn't really trip any alarms for me but i will also say if you are faking this that's an obsessive freaky amount of studying to be this male character and keep everything in line yeah and so when we come back now art's tone is different because he's a lot more uh, jocular he's he's having more fun with this he's he's like well here you go folks the one and only mel you know he's like he's and he starts off, as we said, with the Blair Witch thing. And what he's getting at is like, come on, man, this isn't like a really slow burn joke on this me. This yanked up. my chain. Are you
2: yanking my chain? Yeah.
1: And Mel's like, I haven't seen Blair Witch, but you know, I'm telling you the <laughs> truth. Right. So you could say Art maybe is a little more wary, but he's also, I think, genuinely pleased and delighted that he's back. after this amount of time so they read their old friends yeah it's it's that story got a lot of mileage what he also says art does is that when can you believe all the hullabaloo that happened after you made that second appearance because now you have groups of people who are mel's holes aficionados and they go out looking for it paranormal investigators and and different people and, and tv news stories and newspaper stories It turned into a thing, whereas most times these stories that happen on Coast to Coast AM don't really go much of anywhere. This one had a a bit of a zeitgeist hook in it. So that's where we're at now. And in this interview, he's rehashing some stuff. And one thing I did want to say is that, one, again, he says Yellow Gear, again, a couple of years. I'm later, so glad you sprang that on me. I loved
2: learning that on the air while we were talking.
1: Well, I'm trying to, you know, as I do too. I'm trying to profile this guy.
2: Like, what is he? You know, again. yeah. I was wondering what that meant. I just kind of assumed it was caterpillars and you know heavy equipment. Well, no, you're right. That, I think that's what he means. But but what I'm well, saying is, well, it isn't. It isn't though. I yeah. mean, it's different from like the thing I used to use when I worked at a grocery store in the back to move pallets around. <laughs> yeah, the like, pallet that makes more yeah. sense.
1: Yeah, because they're always yellow. Well, that's the point. Is that it's material handling equipment. So MHEs. Yeah. Mel has some, like I said, either he's constructed a, a pretty good profile of this guy and he's sticking to it, even a few years later. This thing is pretty consistent is what I'm saying. I think that's what Art is picking up on. Yeah. I will also say a couple of other interesting things that stuck out to me. One is that Art asked him, it's like, look, have you talked to anybody since then? And Mel claims that he's talked to people about what the whole actually is. Of course, it's been discussed quite a bit with people he trusts, if you believe that his story is true. And he says, not the people, though, that know what it is, but, you know, what we're speculating about, people who are knowledgeable as much as people who speculate about crop circles, crappies, and have interesting but valid ideas and theories. Mel claims that there are people that really know what it is. And he doesn't elaborate. I'm wondering, I think it's military, if that's part of his story here. Yeah. He says, look, man, I telling the story innocently on the show and all this other hullabaloo happened because of that and happened up around me and it's changed my life. They go on to tell some other stories. One thing that was interesting, again, this was a confirmation for me about three years later, wondering if Mel had military background, because, of course, there are records. You could check him out if you had a real name. Mel says, look, I got to tell you something. I think about it there. I couldn't tell you which army they were. Now, Mel claims that he was in the army, he says, many, many years ago, and he knows what green uniforms look like and the fatigues and so forth. Okay, so for me, it's like, okay, so he does have a military background. Uh, He said army, not navy, but, you know, terms are sometimes interchanged as sometimes within the branches of service, there are very specific terms, but he goes on to say, I got to tell you something, and I think about it here, I couldn't tell you which army they were, all he knew were that they were military uniforms. And that just also reminded me of crop circles. Remember when the military got involved with an experiment? Uh, I think it was uh, Operation Blackbird.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: And they were goofing around with the tapes of the data that the the crop circle researchers were with the experiment they were trying to conduct. Yeah. And you're wondering, like, why are you goofing around with this silly stuff? Why are you wasting your time with this, this nonsense? Yeah. Yeah. That's what it reminded me of here. If the military is involved, if that's true in any capacity, what's going on here? Why are you so concerned about a a garbage well? (laughs) Why? What's really happening? Now, of course, you could say like, well, that's all baloney, but the neighbors certainly could chime in with this. And then you wonder, well, why aren't they? Have people tried to seek out the neighbors? Well, it's very easy to shut people up who don't have a dog in this fight, a horse in this race. They don't want to get involved with this. They saw what happened to Mel. Suddenly he's gone. You know, what's going on here? We're not going to mess with that. You just need somebody to come by and say, like, you're not going to talk about this or we will ruin you. And that has happened so many times. It happened, if you believe that story with Roswell, that happened with the woman who was with a group of grad students, I believe, on a geology exercise with their major university. And they claimed that they, you know, at Roswell, there was two crashes. They saw the second one or they were at the site of the second one. The army shows up right away and they were told to face the rock. And, uh, there was a pretty nasty, uh, <laughs> NCO non-commissioned officer who was screaming at them. Like, if you say anything, you have no idea what we're going to do to you. You will regret it. Face the rock, say nothing about this ever. And of course that story was told on this woman's deathbed to her nurse. And it was the nurse who reported yeah. the story in a few documentaries well, that's what I'm saying. That you just have to threaten people like that. It's like, okay. Yeah, I don't I don't want any yeah. of that. That's fine. Alien Schmidt. I will not tell anybody yeah. until I'm on my deathbed, <laughs> perhaps. Right. And again, this is just part of a interesting little twist if you are making this stuff up. And he says, I couldn't tell you if they were German. I couldn't tell you what they were. And Art asks him it's like, well, did they have sidearms? And he said, Yeah, they had weapons, fully automatic weapons. Everyone did. Another interesting tell, Mel tells Art, it's like, Well, you've been to Israel. And I guess maybe he's an that on the show. He's a listener. And he says, so then you you know what it's like seeing weapons everywhere you go. Either Mel has been to Israel or he just heard Art talk about it. Again, small things I, I kind of remember. The other thing I was going to say, though, uh, and then I'll turn it over to you, is that I wanted to know what this character of Mel f- felt that was odd about the whole, right? I mean, yeah, it's a bottomless garbage pit with uh, magical interdimensional properties perhaps, but what do you feel about it? And all he would say in the earlier interviews was, well, I don't know what it is. You know, I'm not saying it brings dogs back to life or black beams are shooting out of it. All I can tell you is that it just seems weirdly uh, bottomless to me and I don't hear anything. It's like, I just, it confounds your expectations a little, but he says like, I don't know, maybe it is supernatural in some way. And then Art, you know, they would have a discussion. It's like, well, what do you mean by that? And it's like, oh, I don't, you mean the dog thing? It's like, yeah, I I don't know. You know, it's like, it just seems weird. It's not natural. It's more than natural. It's supernatural. Or there, there's something about it that's paranormal. What he says, Art asks him again. It's like, did the hole make you feel any weird way? You know, it's a question we would ask. And Mel says, yeah, it does have an odd feeling when you're near it. And I thought this, this analogy was interesting because i'm not sure i felt it but he said have you ever been surprised by the moon and i said well yeah sure you know it's like yeah i'm, I'm talking about you go outside you're not really thinking about it and then you look up like oh there, there's the moon man it's like yeah, yeah. i forgot it's uh, it's there in the sky or you just yeah. weren't expecting it it surprises you a little bit now that really hasn't happened to me where i've been surprised you forget that there's a moon but i have gone up and in a moment really appreciated it. Like you look at like, wow, man, that's really bright tonight. Like that that full moon's gorgeous. And then you can see the features on it. So I have been suddenly appreciative of it, but I didn't feel what Mel was describing. So that's the only way I could describe that feeling is that when you're near it, it kind of caught you off guard. He says, it's a very odd feeling. Like it has a presence, right? It has a gravity, like the moon does.
2: It makes me think of my my friend Darren's children's book. He's written several children's books, but he has one called Stop Stop Following Me, Moon. It's excellent If you have kids, it is just excellent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Stop Following Me, Moon. I love it. I I still read it. My son's too old. i (laughs) I was just reading (laughs) Um, Right. Now we come down to the fact that he actually did go to Australia. And not only did he go to Australia, he was handsomely paid Mm. for a lease on the property. Which I have questions about because I have questions about the ownership of the property. We're gonna save that for part right. two. But he made millions of dollars and apparently went to Australia and rescued Wombat. <laughs> well, as, as, if as the one story does. Yes. couldn't get any stranger. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we have we have some more serious details right. about what went on while he was in Australia. And we're doing some investigating there ourselves to try to determine if anyone matching his description went there because Newsflash, Mel Waters, the name, doesn't really exist. We have Mm -hmm. done our normal Mm -hmm. amount of digging, Mm -hmm. some cursory research, as we used to say in the old days, and I was (laughs) unable to find him, but uh, I didn't look super hard because many, many dozens of people have gone before us Doing this, looking for the Mel Waters and not being able to find any property owners, the last name, nothing. I looked for Melvin Waters. Mm -hmm. I looked for, and I found some people that sort of fit the bill, but they were from the 1800s. Mm. That name is an area name. Waters is an area name. But there was not a... There was not a Mel Waters, but it's it's completely conceivable that he has a pseudonym or that him and Art worked together to give him a pseudonym oh, that's, for this story. I didn't
1: think of that. Yeah, that could be
2: it. I mean, we've offered that to our own guests, yeah. some of them. So uh, um, yes, we, yes, we have. There's more details to what happened in Australia, but I guess you would think that that would be close to the end of the story. When Why would we go, be going to a part two here? Well, the reality <laughs> is one of the things that Art said when Mel called back in was like, you know... You were supposed to get in touch with me back in December, and you were a no show. Practically called him out on
1: the right. Air. Well, you were a no show. Got Ronnie'd. Uh, yeah, <laughs> listen to the Delphus Ring episode for yeah. that reference. Way back when. Yeah. Uh, one thing here that I made my notes though is this turning point, because I I'm still looking at this as a narrative legend. Let's say, yes, classic AL legend. In this narrative, we're at a turning point here, where something he said earlier on a point to make. Uh, again, maybe it was setting us up, was that he immediately got a call from his realtor saying, like, uh, there's somebody with means who wants to make a very generous offer. No fixer-upper. He was very eager to take this property off your hands. And I don't know if that's the government or somebody posing as them or, you know, rep- some representative or just somebody uh, like the uh, the weirdos who showed up to want to buy the BetSphere. <laughs> like somebody finds right. out like, well' a very, very big sum chunk of money for this. yeah, who knows But what Mel said was like I'm not really interested and in, in, I don't want really to want to call my realtor, but if I ever sat down with somebody who had authority, the means, he said I might take a deal. and that's what we're at now is that apparently a deal was offered and it was pretty lucrative. and it fits with his earlier stated wish to go possibly to Australia. This is a turning point. There's been a disappearance of sorts, a pretty major time gap, and something has come to fruition that Mel has stated earlier, and he did that. So now the question is like, well, why are you back here? And where did you go? And Art's
2: like, you were were rolling in money, millions of dollars in Australia, and now you're back here. Maybe not doing so well. What gives? And that's the point at which he's like, Well, I have a little <laughs> bit of a story to tell. Yeah. The reason I didn't show up in December was because I was kidnapped and left for dead with my teeth missing in a back alley in San Francisco. That's going to wrap up part one
1: of our series on Mel's Hole. We'll be back in two weeks with our final part, part two. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Hi, I'm Renee Windsor. B-R-A-Y. My name
2: is Zachary Power. R-E-N-E. I'm Dr. Nathan Bray. Z-Z-Z.
1: Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at Foundermusic.com. And our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at deadstreetproductions.com.
2: Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to astonishingcontact at gmail.com.
1: Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at AstonishingLegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at Patreon.com
2: slash AstonishingLegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions.
1: Good night. (laughs)